What's up, everybody? John Hoover, All Sooners, along with Ryan Chapman. We're doing a little something a little special today because we've already recorded the full podcast, and as soon as we stopped, as soon as we shut the lights off, we got major news breaking out of Norman, Oklahoma. Sooners are going to have a new defensive coordinator. How about that? I was not expecting, as Ryan said, it's a kind of curious Thursday news dump. You're not supposed you're supposed to push that back to Friday, but here we sit. Uh, we're going to dump this on top of the podcast, and then you'll have the full hour or something other podcast that we uh, have already recorded talking about the usual stuff. But here we go. Ryan, statement from Brent Venables, released via Twitter and then via press release. Uh, Sooners are going to be in the market for a new defensive coordinator. They have a mutually agreed to part ways with the one and only Ted Roof. Weird, weird situation. It, if you had told me this news, John, heading to San Antonio, you and I were on a flight with some other you beat riders going to San Antonio. And if you had turned to me in that lovely exit row with all that luscious leg room and said, this is going to be the last game that Ted Roof coaches at Oklahoma, I could have said, I can get there. That makes sense. But then when we talked to Ted Roof in San Antonio, he seemed relaxed, big smile. I believe he had told Eli Letterman of selloutcrowd.com. I don't know who was around at that point. I had bounced over to talk to some players that he still has that fire to coach basically, and that he wanted to continue to coach as long as, as that happened. And so it, it felt like something that uh, you got the new co-OCs and Latrell and Joe John Finley. This is something that I'd kind of deleted out of my brain and moved along, but yet we get the mutually agreed to part waves press release and, and who I'm going to toss back over to you. Cause not only is this uh, catch caught me a little off guard, I think that the statement from Brent Venables is kind of odd in this press release. It is odd. I'll read it to you right now. He says, uh, I have the utmost respect and appreciation for Ted. I told him Wednesday I've made a decision to go in a new direction at his at defensive coordinator and offered him an opportunity to remain on our staff in a different role. He explained that he has a deep desire to keep coaching and will look to do that at a different school. Ted is an incredibly knowledgeable coach and teacher and his players love playing for him. Our program is thankful for his extreme dedication the last two seasons and for helping make us better. That's from Brent Venables on the decision to replace Ted Roof as the defensive coordinator. Now let's put some context behind this, Ryan. You've got the quote from Brent Venables in early September about the relationship and how the calls, the co- those two coaches, Brent Venables and and Ted Roof came to their game planning and game day calling situation. Yeah, this is actually the Roof quote, excuse me, um, from this was the first game week in the lead up to Arkansas State this year. Uh, Ted Roof was asked, essentially, here's a summary of the question, not the word for word, but are you calling the plays or is Brent Venables calling the plays? This is from Ted Roof. Quote, he, Brent Venables, has input in everything we do. He's the head coach, and he's a very strong, powerful, positive leader. So that's how that goes. There was basically a follow-up question going, okay, but can you answer the original question? And this is Ted Roof. He has, then he said, I do, and then he has, if he wants to override something and call something, he does. That's how we roll. It's no different than a lot of places. And it was a long time ago. We've had a full season since then. I don't remember that being like, super contentious. So I remember Ted Roof trying to find the correct words to maybe not step on anyone's toes, but I, it wasn't like a, well, I get overridden or, or something. Like, yeah. it, it just seemed to be like a, Hey, this is just 
life when you have like a defensive minded head coach, a defensive coordinator. So uh, I, I think that that context paired in with Brent Venable's statement uh, that he released of would like to go a different direction with defensive coordinator, uh, right, wrong, or otherwise, I think a lot of people had in their mind, Ted Roof is kind of the great organizer of the defense during practice. So Brent Venables can do his uh, head coach duties, but Brent Venables had said he's heavily involved in the game plan. He had said in fall camp that like he can't do his job properly unless he's heavily involved in the defense. And, and so Ted Roof was kind of a, a placeholder at practice, does some calling to plays on game day, stuff like that. So going a different direction in defensive quarter, does that mean that Brent Venables wants to totally hand off the defense proper and say, I want to bring in a big name to be my just defensive coordinator. And, and then I just do game management stuff, or I can't see it going even a, a further direction. The other way, as far as like, unless Brent Venables just says straight up, I'm calling the plays, screw it. But then Ted Roof is still a very experienced linebacker coach. I, I, it, it's, we just digested this, right? I haven't made any calls yet or anything no. like that. We're, we're in the moment. This release came out literally 15 minutes ago, and I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, that statement and, and what that means of, of what Brent Venables is looking for to fill that spot here going forward. Now, I'm surely it's not in the other direction where Brent Venables is like, you know what? I don't need a defensive coordinator. I need a special teams coordinator. I'm going to hire a special teams coordinator, and I'm going to be the defensive coordinator. Surely. He's going to be more of a head coach, CEO, uh, delegator on game day, right? You would think. But uh, I will take you back to, and I think it was last year's, I think, I, I have this picture, and maybe my memory's all garbled up. That's very very entirely possible. But I have this memory of him in his uh, Christmas National Signing Day jacket talking about, well, I make all the calls. I, I, I'm in the, I was running the defensive meeting. He was telling us a story about like a recruit stepped in or a recruit called or something. And he had to step out of the meeting. I'm in there running the defensive meetings and uh, we're doing this and we're going that. And the guy calls, I, I can't remember exactly what that was, but he laid it out and expressed game planning. I'm running the defensive meeting. Those are his words. And um, so now he wants it run a different way or he wants it run a certain way that Ted Roof wasn't running? I don't know. Uh, again, we're trying to figure this out in real time, so um, we don't have any major candidate, breaking news candidates for you. It just happened, like, like Ryan said, 10, 15 minutes ago. So, Ryan, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just making the rounds on uh, national Twitter. Yeah. Um, well, interesting. It, it's interesting because I think, like, my first default would be that Brent Venables trusts Brandon Hall, who now has worked under Venables for a couple of years as the safeties coach. He did an excellent job at what Troy is the defensive coordinator, maybe a little Todd Bates. Act. Cause the weird part about it is I think Jay Valai has a co-defensive coordinator title. Todd Bates mm -hmm. certainly does. And then you had Ted roof. So then if it was going to be like a hall elevation, Plus Bates, does Valai stay with the title just for the salary? But then if that's what you wanted to do, why do you need to go a different direction? Are, are you looking for Brent Mills going to be the linebackers coach? And then you want to add an on-field special teams coach? Is it you want to go in a different direction? You can't keep Ted Roof on staff because it's kind of weird to have a guy just who was 
the defensive coordinator a year ago. That's now just the linebackers. Like this is what, what goes through my head as far as what makes sense there. And then, then you start going, okay, is Brent Venables going to go completely the other way and go like big fish hunting of a Jim Leonard. There's a like Zach Arnett who just came from the sec as far as he had done a great job as Mississippi state's defensive coordinator. Didn't Gene Chizik just get uh, freed of, of his duties too? Yeah. I, I think think that might be a tough sell of, he got freed of his duties because the defense was awful at North Carolina, but, but uh, whereas like Arnett, the defense was good at Mississippi state, then it didn't really work out as the head coach. And and you have um, uh, obviously Jeff Levy coming in and we we've covered all the connections with Selman and Levy and all that stuff. Uh, Should, it was just an unexpected move, and, and my brain's going in a bunch of different places. Like I said, yeah. haven't been able to make any calls. I've not gotten text returned yet. Uh, outside of one comment that I said you're supposed, to, you guys are supposed to do this on Friday, and got an LOL. That was about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that was about. <laughs> uh, OU last year was 98th in scoring defense. This year improved to 46th, so twice as good. Um, OU last year was 121st in total defense. That improved to 78th this year. That's not the standard. 78th is not the standard, but no doubt they improved in year two under Brent Venables and Ted Roof. Uh, But 108th in pass defense and 43rd in run defense. Uh, The Oklahoma defense has got to get better. Simple as that. Um, 26 turnovers gained was sixth in the country. 20 interceptions was uh, second in the country. Tackles for loss, they were number seven in the country at seven and a half per game. Um, you saw some improvements, and and in the net, in the actual podcast that you guys are going to listen to next, uh, Ryan and I go over a, uh, a report card for each position, and we come down pretty hard on a couple of positions, including uh, a couple on the defense. So you're going to want to stick around for that. Um, anything else, Ryan, before we uh, return our, our viewers to their regularly scheduled programming? Well, it – it's just continuing through just some kind of odd timing now it is a staff that had been pretty steady right through Brent Venables first two seasons. You had two staff changes. One of them was the wide receiver coach position. That was an interim throughout the season portion of 2022. That was filled by Emmett Jones, all returns in year one, fantastic hire. He did really great work. We're going to talk about the receivers here in a second in the report card. Uh, and the work that Emmett Jones did, then the only other staff change you had had was Jeff Levy getting hired away. That was not Brent Venables making that call. That was Jeff Levy accepting a head coaching job. And, and Brent Venables elevates from the rank of analysts, uh, Seth Luttrell, who obviously has an extensive, he was overqualified, frankly, to be an analyst and, and just a, a great, great, great thing to have in Brent Venables' back pocket. Uh, and otherwise, like the other position is you've had a couple of analysts move around. It's been announced by Kansas State that Matt Wells is headed to be their co-offensive coordinator, QB coach. You had some quality control guys head off with Jeff Levy. But uh, it's one of those things that if I look internally, John, that there's just like not an obvious, um, hey, if you're just pulling an, an analyst off the street, like you've got uh, James Kowski there for the linebackers. But again, if that's the on-field move that's made, that indicates to me that Britt Venables is saying, I'm going to do the – I'm going to be the play caller like full time. I'm just going to be out in front and, and be that guy. So. Yeah. Or not, Skowski to linebackers, Brandon Hall to coordinator. Yeah. Yeah. I I still think that uh, if Brandon Hall goes to coordinator, that's probably more of an indication that Brent Venables is like, yeah, I'm just going to do all this maybe, but yeah. I, yeah. I, I just don't see him elevating 
called a coordinator to then call the plays in a manner that Ted Roof didn't. And then if that was the case, is Skalski already proven to be that much better of a linebackers coach than Ted Roof? That that seems like a I don't know. It, it's possible. It, it just doesn't seem likely. Maybe I, I'm just totally misreading that thing. Yeah, and we got a long way to go. Uh, he's probably got somebody in mind. He's probably not going to drag this out. My guess is he will hire someone sooner than later. Uh, but we'll see. We'll have to um, we'll have to put some thought into it to come up with some interesting names. Uh, Ted Roof, uh, super nice guy, super likable guy. Everything you want in a college football coach: friendly, outgoing. Demanding on his players, um, but little nomadic. Going back to 1987, two years at Alabama, one year at West Georgia, four years at Duke, uh, one year at UMass, um, followed by two years as defensive coordinator at UMass. Uh, let's see, Western Carolina, Georgia Tech, which is his alma mater, head, head defensive coordinator and head coach at Duke for six years and later became – uh, defensive coordinator at Georgia Tech, again, his alma mater for five years. Other than that, he was never anywhere for more than three years, including University of Oklahoma, which only lasted two years. So there's that. Sooners are uh, looking for a new uh, quality control assistant coach, or uh, like like Ryan said, uh, Matt Wells has moved on to Kansas State. He's going to be co-offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach there in Manhattan. Sooners don't got to worry about that anymore because they're off to the SEC where they need a new defensive coordinator. Listen, stick around. This is just the beginning of the podcast. We've got our report cards coming up. We've got uh, a big segment with Randall. He did the recruiting All-American games in uh, Orlando and San Antonio. So he's been super busy. Transfer portal stuff's coming up next. That's uh, that's that's your break for break uh, segment one for the All Sooners podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the All Sooners podcast. It is a uh, Thursday. We had to push a day back, push it back a day, I should say, to January 4th. But it's episode 231. We're here for you. Uh, we'll tell you why we had to push it back here in a second. That's Ryan Chapman. He's in Moore. I'm John Hoover. I'm in Tulsa. Our man Randall, Camp Randall, is back in San Antonio. What? Yeah, he's going to jump on later to tell us about his Many, many, many travels. He's been all over the country covering recruiting, covering guys that have signed with OU that are playing in All-American games. So uh, you're not going to want to miss any of that. Uh, The bowl game is over. The season is over. The college football playoff is down to two teams. Ryan, uh, first of all, how good were those semifinals the other day? I feel like we deserve those semifinals after some years of bad ones. Yeah, it's two years in a row that we've gotten excellent semifinals. I mean, you think back, a year ago, Michigan TCU was really good. And then how can you beat? I know that Michigan and Alabama going to overtime at the Rose Bowl is pretty electric, but hard to beat syncing up Ohio State, missing that field goal as clock struck midnight for Georgia fans on in Eastern time zone. So it's two years in a row of really great semifinals. And now I'm just going to do the fingers crossed of we saw how it went last year. We finally got competitive semifinals and then we got the worst national championship game we've ever had. Something tells me we're going to have an awesome game on Monday night. I think we're going to see this four-team playoff out with a little bit of style between the Huskies and the Wolverines. Yeah, and then we're on to 12. And uh, really, I kind of get the sense that there's going to be a lot of blowouts in the 12-game playoff. 12-team playoff. Probably, but at least we'll have the – we had tons of blowouts in the four-team playoff, so it's like – 
at least there will be no doubt. There will be no Florida States or anything like that. Like, if you're not in the top 12, I, I'm sorry. You don't get to gripe if you're Team 13 about, we didn't get a chance to win a national title. Well, you could probably just, like, lost two games or less. You'd probably be in. So Yeah, be I'll, better. I'll take the trade off, I suppose, especially with how the rest of the bowl season's gone with all the opt-outs. Oh. 12 teams that are going to be full strength playing for a natty. Sure, I'm in. I used to love bowl games. And then 2023 happened. These are bad. Even the good ones are not great. What are you going to do? Um, Ryan, uh, or I should say Randall, is going to join us later to talk about recruiting, transfer portal, uh, opt-outs, all that good stuff. Uh, we're going to go over all that with him in segment two and segment three. So Ryan and I have reserved segment one for your report card enjoyment. You guys love report cards. You know you do. So uh, we're going to give some grades. We're going to hand out some grades for the Sooners, offense, defense, and special teams, as well as the coaching staff. You're not going to want to miss that. Stick around. Here we go. Ryan, report card time. Pa-ching. Here's your report card, yes, son. Uh, quarterbacks. Let's start where we always start with quarterbacks. I got no complaints. Dylan Gabriel was better on the ground than he probably should have been. He, than he should have been asked to be, maybe. Um, he was better throwing the football than he was last year at any, po- at any point. Uh, the bowl game notwithstanding, Jackson Arnold and his kind of blindsided by, by college football speed and not seeing the, the receiver or not seeing the DB and stuff like that. I'm going to give the quarterback group an A. Put up huge numbers all year long. Was really one of the best groups position groups for Oklahoma on the field anywhere all season long. I'm going to give those cats an A. Yeah. I, I think Dylan Gabriel and Jack Snarled both are, are going to print this thing out and put it on their fridge when they show mom and dad, Hey, the all students report card came in, which is what I know every player in that locker room is waiting for. <laughs> I gave him an A as well, because I, I, full disclosure at this point in college football, I don't really consider the bowl game to be part of the season. I consider it to be like an exhibition, its own thing. Yep. Uh, We can rehash the highs and the lows of the Jackson Arnold Bowl game. If you're an Oklahoma fan that's an optimist, look at the second and third quarter. If you don't like, if you're a pessimist, if you're a pessimistic human like I am, look at the first and fourth quarter and panic, all that stuff, whatever. But when Jackson Arnold was thrust into a game that mattered for Oklahoma to mathematically stay alive and hope to backdoor their way into a Big 12 championship game, he took care of the football and he made two huge third down plays in Provo. The rest of the season, you look at the losses. Dylan Gabriel is not why they lost the Kansas game because he wasn't trusted to play in the Kansas game, basically, after the first bad throw. Uh, And then in Bedlam, we're talking about two fumbles that uh, one of them bad snap, one of them we still don't know why why everyone denies that Javante Barnes was obviously supposed to get that football, all that stuff. Neither that was on Dylan Gabriel. Uh, I don't put the feed of the the fourth and four throw at his feet or anything like that. And Dylan Gabriel won you the Texas game, and he did it in a manner that no Oklahoma quarterback has ever done before, and he got a lot better. So it's an A. I had no complaints whatsoever. Uh, I thought quarterback was maybe the most consistent position group on the entire team for Oklahoma in a good way. Yeah, and and real quick, I'll add to that. Jackson Arnold, uh, true freshman, we saw some growing pains. I think we're going to see more growing pains. And I think for a stretch in 2024, not the whole season, but for an early stretch, especially as SEC play gets unfolding, 
there's going to be a time where OU fans miss that consistency of Dylan Gabriel, miss his uh, knowledge of what to do, what not to do, where to throw, where not to throw, uh, defense, what he's looking at, what he's what he's understanding. There's going to be times, there's going to be growth pains, and there's going to be hitches in uh, in the game um, for Jackson Arnold, just because that's what young quarterbacks have to go through. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, who would have thought? I I was told by everyone that Jackson Arnold steps in. A ball will never be underthrown ever again. Look at the second interception. If, if he just leads Drake Stoops, not only is the safety have to make a play on, on Drake Stoops instead of the football, but maybe Drake Stoops squirts through there. And, and we know the arm talent Jackson Arnold has. It's just going to have to get up to speed as far as yeah. how quickly you have to throw the ball, how hard you have to throw it, trusting your receivers, trusting Brennan Thompson to continue to run under the football. That was a great throw on that one if you want to compare him. You're just going to see growing pains as any first-time starter has. Brent Venable said it best. What did you say to him? He said, I said, don't throw it late over the middle. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just that's from the head coach. So if he processes the game a little quicker, as he will, uh, those throws will be on time, and, and you'll see that big arm come out. Uh, let's move on to running backs. Oh, boy, this one was uh, – for as much talent as is in that room and for the guy that they're being coached by, DeMarco Murray, I got to say this was a disappointing season. Um, they didn't find RB1 until the second half of the season when Gavin Sawchuk finally got healthy. And once he got healthy, he was fine, but it took him that long. Uh, I'm giving the running backs a C. Yeah, it, it, this was a tough group to evaluate because Tommy Walker gave you a couple of nice games, one against SMU, uh, one really against Kansas. I thought he was really good for that period of time, but then he got hurt, and then suddenly Oklahoma couldn't run the ball again against Kansas. Javante Barnes just was not a factor this year after a really awesome true freshman season, and I think that probably has more to do with that cleanup surgery. Didn't ever look correct after spring. Major in and out and Sawchuck with the hamstring, like you said, it, it took him really until what UCF, uh, till that area of the season to get going. Once you had it there, then Gavin Sawchuk was awesome, gave a huge lift to this offense. But you look in the bowl game, and the second he kind of popped that hamstring, OU's running game evaporated once again. And then it was all on the true freshman Jack Snarl to dig the Sooners back out of the, the late hole. And so uh, I, I think that I, I went C plus because the, the highs were really high for Gavin Sawchuck, but this was a group with everyone that was in that room. It should not have taken that long to find one guy, much less the fact that if Tawi Walker was hurt, then Gavin Sawchuck wasn't as effective in Lawrence. When Gavin Sawchuck was kind of out of commission for a quarter in the Alamo Bowl, Tawi Walker, you saw the limitations as far as his top speed, all that stuff. So a lot of promise. I still don't think they played up to that promise. So I, I gave him a C plus though, because Sawchuck did give him some some big moments late. Uh, the saving grace might be that um, Taylor Tatum and Xavier Robinson are going to elevate the the game in that running back room. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Demarco Murray also, uh, I mentioned this on uh, a podcast last night. I was guesting on um, Demarco Murray might have to change his coaching style just a little bit. If he's got one guy, you know, at the end of two a days that flies home to mom and dad, right? One, he's homesick. Two, he's been yelled at. You know, three, he's not being trusted with the game plan, whatever it is. He, uh, you know, Smothers goes home and comes back, but he, but he left the team there for a little while. And then you got your leading rusher at the time, Tawi Walker, gets suspended 
for getting into it with his position coach, uh, who knows what, exactly what the context was, whether it was, you know, ball security or uh, losing, uh, you know, I think it was a cold tub issue at some point or, you know, who knows? Anyway, point being, DeMarco Murray coaches old school. He coaches old school like I'm old school, like I want you to grab my face mask and yell in my face uh, because that's the kind of coaching I take. Guys don't take that kind of coaching anymore. Not all guys do. Some do, but some don't. You got to figure out who does and who doesn't, who's a little uh, maybe more sensitive in today's era. So it's DeMarco Murray's young in his coach. What is this, year four for him? Year four, year five as a, as a college football coach? He's someone that's still figuring it out, and he needs to maybe adjust his own coaching style. So that's part of that grade is a reflection of the position coach, which I said as a C, Ryan says C+. C plus. Yeah, and it's like you you can coach hard no matter what the what that looks like. Some guys coaching hard just looks a little bit different than, than other guys, and so yep. that's got to be key. That that's got to be something that comes along. Uh, and and look, there there's not one thing. Nick Saban doesn't reach every single player in the country. Kirby Smart doesn't reach every single player that's ever come through, and that's not on Saban. That's not on Kirby Smart. But it felt like this year in. It hadn't been an issue, really, right? Because Kennedy Brooks and Eric Gray seemed to, to take that really, really well. Gavin yep. Sawchuk and Javante Barnes seemed to take that. And Marcus Major. Major's not a coach. He's just hurt, banged up, stuff like that. Uh, but but maybe being able to, to show a little bit of diversity in your coaching style in an understanding that, that every guy's a bit different. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, wide receiver, as we move on. Strength of the offense, um, that and, and Dylan Gabriel's consistency were the strength of this offense. And luckily for Oklahoma, they went hand in hand to the point where they won 10 games. Uh, you had a receiver, Drake Stoops, kind of almost, I'm not going to say come out of nowhere, uh, but to go from career high of 37 catches to eight, something like 86 his senior year, 86 catches. Uh, he was almost at 1,000 yards, unbelievable season. Yet another receiver who was almost at 900 yards. Yet another receiver who was almost at 800 yards. Extremely productive out of those top three guys. And they had some really good uh, moments out of the uh, depth, out of the backups. So I'm giving this these guys an A+. Plus. Yeah, I it, the quarterback was the most consistent group. But we also had big expectations for Dylan Gabriel. Wide receiver was a big old question mark, right? We were wondering, yep. is Jalil Farouk that guy is the number one guy? What can you get out of a little bit of Andrew Anthony? Well, Oklahoma had Andrew Anthony come out of nowhere. Some Someone that, you know, Texas reporters were asking, who is this person? Oklahoma's offense can't be that good if he's leading them in receiving through the non-conference. And then Texas found out what Andrew Anthony's all about uh, early on in that one. And then I thought Oklahoma did the hardest thing that an offense has to do, which is lose a guy who had established himself as the go-to and then find another one. And I thought the Sooners did that with Drake Stoops. You get the Nick Anderson. You get the Jaden Gibson. Brennan Thompson gives you big plays in, in moments against Iowa State in the bowl game. And, and the fact that Oklahoma had to roll through and find different guys, huge, huge, huge for Emma Jones, especially because – a position group we'll talk about here in a second gave you virtually nothing to help out your passing game. I'm right there with you, Hoove. I I I think A plus when you kind of add in that curve. I still think Gabriel was more consistent, but the fact of what we didn't know about this wide receiver group, the conversations we had all through the spring, all through the summer, I don't see how this is anything but a big A plus and a huge win for Emmett Jones in year one in Norman. 
The thing I like about this receiver core is you've got uh, the consistency of Stoops, the reliability of Stoops, but then you've got uh, Nick Anderson, who all he did through 12 games was lead the nation, lead all of college football, major college football, in yards per catch, 23.8 or something like that. And uh, he had a teammate who caught, who averaged more per catch. Jaden Gibson averaged 26 per catch, I think. And then he had a teammate, Brennan Thompson, who averaged more per catch. So we're knocking on Dylan Gabriel the past two years for his lack of a deep throw and inaccuracy and overthrow and underthrow, whatever it is. Those guys are catching the deep ball. They are exposing defenses. Uh, it, it was, I got to say, it was fun to watch. I like a good college football throw game. Sooners were fun to watch this year when they threw the football. Yeah, and and it gives you – and you saw too, Jack Snarl was able to take advantage of that as he have to kind of settled in there. And so you look at what's coming back next year, Andrew Anthony again coming back healthy, another year of development for Nick Anderson and Jaden Gibson. Jalil Farouk's got a lot of work to do this offseason on not the jugs machine, but just running through the gauntlet to not fumble the football, but then you add on Deion Burks, all that stuff. Uh, the Sooners, especially with all the questions of the offensive line, should be able to spread it out and, and, and have some fun next year. And I'm looking forward to it, especially with Emmett Jones's coming in as far as the uh, the freshman class he signed. I think Brennan Thompson averaged something like 33 yards per catch. That's <laughs> what you get when you run a 10-100. Um, anyway, we move on. Uh, you, you mentioned the, uh, the position that didn't get, uh, let me see if I got that number right. Oh, sorry. So after the bowl game, it was up to 40 yards per catch. Dude averaged 40.1 yards per catch. <laughs> That's That'll stupid. Do. That'll do. Yeah. Is that right? No, that's 40 yards per game. 40 yards per game. I'm looking at the wrong average. So I was right the first time. 34, 34 yards per catch. Sorry. I got a little ahead of myself. Both will. I think they'd take either. Yeah, no, uh, that's pretty good. That's that's pretty good. Um, tight ends didn't do much. My prediction was that the wide receiver core was going to be looking and searching for a a wide out one all year long and that nobody was going to emerge. And instead you had three, four, five guys emerge at times. Uh, and my prediction was that uh, Austin Stogner was going to catch 40 passes. Austin Stogner finished with 17, so almost half. <laughs> but, uh, hey, yeah. A couple um, of those catches in the Texas game, we decided in the press box that they were going to count double because of the importance. <laughs> so we're going to give him 20. 20 by the All-Sooners count. 20, so half. He, got, he almost got to half. Uh, that was, uh, I'm sure that was a, a big disappointment for Joe John Finley and that position group. The fact that uh, Blake Smith, I, fin I think, finished with two catches. Uh, the movement, the basketball players that they added, the transfers, the walk-ons didn't contribute anything in the pass game. Uh, contributed a little tiny bit in the run game. Um, but mostly you saw, especially against Oklahoma State, you saw Stogner stumbling as he's as his man's rushing past him for a you know four yard loss or a six yard loss or something like that. That was his block. Major disappointment. I want to say I want to be nice and say C minus, but I got to be honest and say D. Yeah, it's really tough to imagine that you got this production from this tight end room when a year ago. Braden Willis played himself into getting drafted. And even Daniel yeah. Parker, when he wasn't catching the football, was an impact player as far as blocking goes. He, he wasn't a guy that, that was failing that way. I mean, John, there were three games, three games this season in which Austin Stogner caught more than one pass. 
that that is just not something you can have. And 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 two of them, one of them was West Virginia, one of them was TCU. Those were blowouts. Like and Texas being that other one. Uh, we were asking over and over again. At least I was. Why are you not just going five wide or putting another running back on the field? Because the tight end at times this season, I know this is harsh. It was a body that the opposing defense was like, heck yeah, we're happy that Oklahoma has a tight end on the field right now because it wasn't doing anything at all. It, it, there, I can't think of a single game which Austin Stogner was a, a huge positive. And that's not all in Austin Stogner because none of the other guys behind him like did any. Blake Smith was about the same production as he had at Texas A&M. Faneuil got in the game a little bit. Helms, Helms couldn't get healthy, which is not anyone's fault, but just it is what it is. Llewellyn was tweeting halfway through the season, and that's why he's in the portal. I, I gave this group an F because it was a total non-factor and most of the time a net negative for Oklahoma's offense. Yeah, it just can't, can't happen. I can't disagree. It was a big disappointment at that position. Um, the other uh, blockers up front, shall we say, the offensive line, um, five positions – Bill Biedenboe was moving guys around. He, he started out the season by shifting a couple of guys and looking for two tackles, and he found them for a little while. He found this left tackle for the most part, but there was a stretch where the left tackle wasn't playing. Walter Rouse was just on the sideline. Was that at Kansas, yeah, I think? Yeah, Kansas. Were, well, that was the uh, first real Sexton like in full yeah. swing where him and Caden uh, Green – when they came in late first quarter, then the second quarter, that's when Tommy Walker came alive after the rain delay. Yeah. Uh, I think you saw Andrew Rame probably emerge as maybe maybe the most consistent, and, and McCade Matoyer, of course. The two most consistent guys um, are were, were upperclassmen, guys that you would expect to be leaders, and, and they were. They were voted captains at some point. So I think you got good productivity out of those two, but – you know, Savion Bird was a hit or miss too often to the point where they pulled him from the lineup. Um, gosh, right tackle went from Tyler Guyton, who is still projected as a first-round and potentially high first-round pick. Huge frame, uh, good experience, amazing athleticism, and he's sitting over there on the bench the final third of the season. What? Uh, the final quarter of the season while uh, you know Jacob Sexton, Big Sexy, comes in and, and holds that thing down. The offensive line was a mess this year, and I'm going to grade them as a C minus. Yeah, it, it's hard to disagree, but it, it's so weird because as much of a mess as they were, they still were really good in pass protection this year. Like even through all of that rotating through things like that, um, Dylan Gabriel had plenty of time behind them. They were really good in the Texas game, given Dylan Gabriel time and, and space. And it, it was a constant all year long that Oklahoma was, if you go to you know NCAA stats and, and it grids it out by 50 teams a page, basically, you never had to scroll very far as far as sacks allowed per game. Oklahoma was so good in that. Then you flip that over and the running game, how often through the first six weeks was it like, well, yeah, the running backs aren't really taking the job by the horns, but the offensive line's also misfiring and doing things like – it, it was really tough for me to separate, like – because I, I would give the offensive line almost a, a B-plus in pass protection and then a C-minus, I thought, in the running game because I, I don't think anyone really dressed themselves in glory the first half of the season running the football for Oklahoma. So I, I ended up rolling to a C-plus and – it was just kind of hard to separate the two. And 
And I, I just wonder how much of that was the tinkering. And I don't know if that was Jeff Levy tinkering or Bill Biedenbow tinkering because there was that stretch of games in the middle where it's like Caden Green's your left guard. I don't know what anyone else is looking at. Like, I, I know you yeah. know more about football than we do, but Caden Green is in, things are stable. He's out. It, it was so interesting. And I, I thought it's a group that did well when McCade Matower got hurt for those couple of weeks to replace them. So it, it, it was so tough to sift through whatever. I, I kind of landed at a C plus, which I think is pretty representative of the good, the bad, the ugly, that, that was just the Oklahoma offensive line this year at times. Yeah, and I guess here's a reflection of how good uh, Dylan Gabriel was, how good Drake Stoops and Nick Anderson, Jalil Farouk, Jaden Gibson, all those guys were. And down the stretch, Gavin Sawchuk. Here's how good they were. We've I, I've given out a C, a C minus, and a D. And the offensive grade for the season Third in the nation in yards per game, fourth in the nation in points per game. I got to give them a B, a good, hard, maybe even a B plus. Uh, that, so there's some offensive line contributed to how bad the running backs were at times, and the the tight ends didn't help the offensive line at all. And yet, you got the number three or number four, depending on what your metric is, your preferred metric is, number three or number four offense in the country. That's how good Dylan Gabriel and those wide receivers were. Yeah, it, it, it's just wild. And then the thing that I'll probably retain is that in, in Lawrence, you had three downs to pick up a first down and end the game. Offensive yeah. line couldn't do it. In Stillwater, you had uh, plenty of time to engineer a drive and things like that. They couldn't just you know get it going at time. It, it and then you have to factor in two um, in in Stillwater. One of the two fumbles, I think, was on the snap. The, the Javante Barnes one was not. The Dylan Gabriel one was. That was a backbreaker for Oklahoma in that game. And so I I think that it, it's tough for you to go any higher than a C-plus, which is how up and down and sideways it was. From a group that we – if we're talking about me grading on expectations for wide receivers coming in, the offensive line was something that it sounded like behind the scenes they thought was going to be really, really good. And it took a yeah. half a year. We were like, where is this unit you've talked about all spring until the Texas game, basically, where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, you saw a flash of it. What's your uh, overall grade for the offense? Uh, I think for the offense, it was a really, really good situation for most of the time. Uh, I think that there was a lot of frustration with just the two losses and the SMU game rolling on in there. Uh, but I gave it a B plus. I thought the offense was good enough to to truck this thing along. When you look at some of the the penalties, like the procedural stuff, the false mm-hmm. starts, and then uh, the fact of the matter is Oklahoma lost three games this year and turned the ball over 12 times in those three games. That's something that still needed to be uh, ratcheted out. And then, so I, I thought that was probably good enough for an A minus still. And then you have to bump it down uh, half a, or at least a third of a later grade for every jet sweep. So it, it B plus is where we I ended up with the offense. I think that's fair. I got him at a B. Let's switch to the defense and let's go quickly. Um, what, what we're doing here is we're splitting the D line into ends and tackles, and then we're splitting the secondary into safeties and corners. So we've got uh, five groups to, to grade here. I'm going to go defensive ends. Nothing special. Didn't really cost them. Didn't really do anything to to win any major games. Just a straight C. Yeah, I- very average. I uh, gave the defensive ends a B minus because Ethan Downs and Rondell Bothroyd were so good setting the edge. Um, I-, I thought that was huge for Oklahoma that they they got teams into a lot of spots where it was 
uh, hey, you're in third and longs, limited and stuff like that because of what they were able to do to bottle up the run game. And I thought that uh, the defensive ends had a lot to do with that. But I can't go any higher than a B minus because uh, we're going to talk about max protect and getting the ball out quickly. And, and that's why uh, a little bit of that reflects, I think, on the uh, pass rush coming from the edge. And then as we get into the defensive tackles, there was no interior pressure, it felt like. And at a certain point, that's where the five stars matter the most, I think. I'm going to switch my grade on the DNs to a C plus. I think you're you're right about some things uh, upon further review, and I'm going to uh, add to uh, my defensive tackle grade as well. I'm going to switch that from what I had originally on this broadcast as a C. I'm switching that to a C plus. Basically, you you didn't do anything to get your team beat. You weren't an embarrassment. You didn't you know you didn't get run through for six yards of carry, uh, which we've seen in the past. Um, here's the deal. We've talked about this. Oklahoma was really good in the red zone. Oklahoma was really good on third down. Oklahoma was really good at taking the football away. Those are the impact plays that get you off the field. Those are the impact plays that win games for you. And I think they were good. Did they knock ball carriers back? Uh, They had a lot of tackles for loss, so yes. But did they pressure the quarterback? Did they collapse the pocket? Did they own the line of scrimmage? They they just kind of didn't most of the season. So I'm going to go C-plus for the ends, C-plus for the tackles. Yeah, my, my biggest thing with the tackles, and I know that you're not going to get eight sack production or anything like that, but when when, when I hear, hey, uh, an offense is trying to get the ball out quickly, or hey, they're in max protect, that's where you simply have to have a dude on the interior that splits yeah. a double team and blows up everything. And it only has to happen once usually, right? And it blows up the game plan. And the closest Oklahoma got to that, I thought in the Texas game, you had a lacy sack. I thought Terry was good, but that was it. And that was for the whole defensive line. And I think the entire defense had the out of body. We are so motivated from the embarrassment the year before. And that happens yep. in college football. The rest of the time they held up well enough in the run game C plus. And that's what I'm really interested to see. Um, uh, Jacob Lacey, you look at Lacey and Terry who are coming back. Neither one of them had a full off season, right? Because Jacob Lacey had spring, but then the blood clot scare. Dejon Terry came in after spring, and we heard he was doing two-a-days trying to get up to speed. I'm fascinated to see what development can you get out of those guys this spring, considering they're going to have a full offseason. Then you add in your David Stones of the world, who was shredding in Orlando. Can't wait to hear what Randall has to say about what he saw up close, because from afar it looked like Mr. Stone was having himself a week out out at the Under Armour All-American game. And and that's going to be the difference, I think, of – can you get David Stone in? Can you get him up to speed? Can you get him wreck and shop early? That's, I think, where you get some some big-time upside potential out of the interior of the line. Yeah. Um, so let's go to linebackers because um, I think that goes hand-in-hand hand with what we're talking about. Uh, the, the statistics are, when we're talking about quarterback sacks, I, I'm with you. I got really tired of the, that's okay, they were in max protect. We couldn't generate any pressure on the quarterback. That's okay. Um, they were getting the ball out on three-step drops. We couldn't get any pressure on the quarterback. That's okay. That's excuse-making is what that is. Uh, there are reasons for some things, and then there's just excuse-making. At some point, you have to knock somebody on their ass and get to the quarterback. You have to get your hands up and bat a ball down. And that's why, as we move to linebackers, you see 10 of Oklahoma's 24 quarterback sacks this year. 10 of their 24, so what is that, 40%? 
uh, were generated by linebackers or defensive backs. Can't get to the quarterback. What do you do? You blitz. You come up with blitzes. So I thought the linebackers as a whole were very good. I thought they um, certainly could have been better. Uh, Jaron Kanick is transitioning still, I think, from high school, you know, sprinter, quarterback, uh, safety to college football linebacker. He's still making that transition, and it's still a little bit uncomfortable to watch sometimes as he overruns a play or misses a tackle or whatever it is. But you can see Jaron Kanick is picking it up. Jaron Kanick's wheels are turning, man. You can see that he's going to be better. He was better at the end of the year than he was at the beginning. He was better in year two than he was in year one. He's better in year three. That's my prediction next year than he will than he was in year two. Meanwhile, you got the Mac Daddy, Danny Stutzman, leading the team over 100 tackles again. Um, what is 11 tackles for loss, I think, something like the 16 tackles for loss. Uh, Danny Stutzman was everything you want in your linebacker. And then who? Kip Lewis, second on the team in tackles? Kip Lewis, the guy that didn't, I think, what did he have, two starts? If that, so maybe three. So I thought the linebackers were as good as uh, Stutzman was like a but should have been on the Butkus finalists um, should have been uh, in consideration for first team all American. They were like really good. I think they were just as, I think they were even better than what they played. Um, especially with Kip Lewis coming out of nowhere and being that, that dude, I gave them a B plus. Yeah. It's a really, really high floor when one of your linebackers is a bona fide butt kiss candidate. And then yeah. I, I think, him getting hurt at the wrong time for timing. If yep. Danny hadn't got hurt, I don't think there's any way in the world he's not at least a semifinalist. And then from there, you're splitting hairs, arguing stuff like that. You pair that with the emergence of Kip Lewis. You pair that with the fact that you got huge snaps out of Kobe McKenzie. And Jaron Kanick, I think, has such a microscope on him because of how excited Brett Venables is. Uh, when you look back, I didn't think he was bad at all. I, there were just times where we were going – uh, could you take a little bit better angle, stuff like that? I, I thought that that group was really, really good. I think that my biggest ding on them would probably be I contribute the woes and zone coverage to linebacker, corner, safety, everybody across the board. But, man, Britt Venable's defense has a badass linebacker leading the way, and he's got another one in the pipeline in Kip Lewis, and I think Kobe McKenzie and Jaron Cannon could be really good next year. I, I gave this group an A- minus only because I, I would have gone A if there hadn't been injury a little bit that, that hurt that toward the back end, plus uh, just the, the, the blanket zone stuff for, for everybody that was not a defensive line. Yeah, I'm with you. I would have gone A if Stutzman hadn't had to miss those two games. His absence exposed – a little bit of what uh, what that defense needed, which was his vision, his leadership, his ability to settle things down and, and make plays. When he stepped out, it was like, oh, oh, okay. So, uh, again, nobody's fault. Just, uh, you know, you're giving out grades for the year. It's uh, you, you don't show up to class, right? And uh, you get knocked down a letter grade, basically, is the way I have to look at that. Um, safeties, I'm going to go <clears> – <throat> I think we thought they were going to be great, potentially elite, and there were some hiccups in the game. Um, hiccups in several games, I should say. Hiccups in the uh, the overall productivity of the room. But when it comes to making plays and knocking guys backwards and stepping up for a football and running it back for six, guys, 
I don't know what else to give this group, but an A minus, maybe even a straight A. It, uh, this is the group that I struggled the most with because Billy Bowman coming on strong. And then you have uh, Billy Bowman, the, the Texas game, a couple of pick sixes, saving the game in Provo. You've got Oklahoma State, Billy Bowman, and Kendall Dolby should have uh, combined again for another game-winning interception. You had the flashes from Robert Spears Jennings, the flashes from Peyton Bowen. Uh, I loved everything I saw there. But then you also had some rum fit issues, and then you had all the zone, which I don't know how much to put on the linebackers, how much to put on the safeties. Yeah how much to dig on the corners. This was still a bad pass defense. And so yeah, someone's got to wear that, right? It's going to be the corners for me that are going to wear that. I, I gave, Same. I gave the safeties a B plus, especially because I mean, the impact plays Peyton Bowen on special teams. Do you, do you want to fact that in the special teams? You want to fact that in the safety play? I think that that's just the Peyton Bowen experience. And I mean, Billy Bowen gave you a bunch of pick sixes. It's got to be a really, really high grade. I was really pleased with what you saw. For the most part, from the safeties, I would nitpick in a little bit of the run help, and then everybody needs massive improvement in the non-interception pass coverage division of uh, of Oklahoma football defensively. But I'm I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna be harsh to the corners and give you a, a B plus for the safeties. Um, B plus is fair, I think, um, especially when you you are second in the nation in interceptions. And I think third overall in the nation in takeaways. Um, those are those are the pro production numbers that I'm talking about. When you do that, yes, it's true. And I, I asked some coaches this during the during the December season. You you get all these takeaways, right? You get all these incredible. I actually I think I asked this at the Alamo Bowl. You get all these incredible takeaways, but yet at the same time you're giving up 300 yards a game on through the year. How does, another, how does a coach prepare for that? And they're like, well, we got to take care of the football. We have to take care of the football against this team. Meaning, if we take care of the football, we're going to have success. That's the way teams approached Oklahoma. Stop throwing it to them, throw it to us, and uh, and we'll have success. So uh, I'm with you on the corners. I'm like Cookie Monster right here. C is for corner. That's good enough for me. Uh, I think the, the corners were not great. I think they were not as bad as we've seen. But they at times had to run freshmen out there, true freshmen out there, to kind of just stand up, and they had to run a safety out there. Remember, Key Lawrence stepped over. I guess was it against Kansas, Excellent. and had to play some, had to play some uh, corner. So, um, Woody Washington back for his fifth year, and just announced that he's coming back for year six. Was not as elite as he should have been. Um, I think he had a a hiccup every about on average, probably every other game including the last one in the Alamo bowl where you're like, what are you, what are you doing out there? What are you, who, what are you looking at? What are you covering? And then if Gentry Williams had been able to stay healthy, I think he upgrades that other cornerback position significantly, but just his inability to stay on the field with that bad shoulder, hopefully he gets that thing fixed in the off season. But yeah, I'm giving them a C man. Yeah. I, the Gentry Williams interceptions, huge upside swing, but Gentry was good. Oh. No fault of anybody. Just the reality of, a quarter a game on average. It felt like that you got yeah. great play out of Gentry and the rest he was hobbled. Um, I think you saw that Kenai Walker is really good in a reserve role, but if he was left out there to try to play a whole game, kind of got exposed with some mental mistakes. Uh, 
you had Macari Vickers just banged up. I, I just don't think Josiah Wagner was quite ready to take on a, a huge role. And that's how you end up with a, a key Lawrence having to slide back over to finish off the Texas game. So uh, this de- pass defense, when it wasn't intercepting the ball, got shredded. It was one of the worst in the country still. Um, it entered bowl week in the 90s. And somebody's got to wear it. It's going to be the corners for me. I, I gave them a C minus just because it was literally like if they were not taking the ball away, there was improvement as far as they were looking around. They were trying to make plays on the football. They just weren't very good at it quite yet. And I think a lot of that had to do with youth injuries, depth issues, which is why I think you saw Oklahoma aggressively go out and get Des Malone, even though they didn't have a, a firm answer from Woody Washington. I think that's why you saw them go out and get Jocelyn Malaska, as far as a, a PWO, because they're saying over my dead body, are we dealing with this health issue at cornerback again? I think that that was the coaching staff recognizing that was a huge issue uh, as well. Hard hard to put injuries at the feet of Jay Valai or, or anything like that. Yeah, and, and I think the freshmen, as I said, they were asked to go in there and do what they could, and I thought they represented themselves pretty well. I thought all three of them were pretty advanced um, for college football players, but Overall grade for me for the corners is a C. Ryan, pass defense, 109 in the nation, 251 yards per game allowed through the air. The defense overall, I give them a C because uh, 78th in the nation in total defense. Um, Again, lots of big plays both ways. Lots of big plays for the defense with takeaways and and tackles for loss and, and stops, third down stops but lots of big plays for the offenses as well. Yeah, I I think I go C-plus overall because the defense, for their struggles, gave the offense a chance to win every single game this year. And I think that for Oklahoma fans, that is something new, right, that the defense wasn't just an absolute backbreaker. But at the same time, 80-plus yard drive at the end of the Kansas game, 95-plus yard drive uh, at the end of of Bedlam allowed – a 95-yard drive against Arizona when you really needed a big stop. Like, it's clear that that's a group that's moving absolutely in the right direction. And and what Britt Vidal talked about with those goal line stands, that's the stuff you want to build on. There just needs to be some more building that happens. And I think that that building is going to happen this offseason. I think this group is primed to take a big jump. And Oklahoma's going to need it with with a first-time starter for the whole year at quarterback. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, special teams. Let's get on special teams. We're going to break this down into kicker, punter, returns, and coverage. We'll keep it simple. Not doing snaps or holds or all the little nuances that go into it, although we could. Um, I'd rather not. Let's go start with kicker, the big one. Uh, how big is it? Well, they just got a commitment from a new kicker today. They're bringing in a freshman, uh, a five-star kicker, I guess one of the best kickers in the country, and Liam Evans are bringing in a freshman. Well, they're also bringing in a transfer from Florida State via East Tennessee State, where he was a four-year starter. Uh, Zach Schmidt needs to be better in 2024, or he's not going to kick. Ryan, I gave the kicking job a C. That includes uh, that includes place kicks, of course, but that also includes kickoffs. I think a 94 kickoffs and only... God, what was the number? 30, less than half, far less than half, 41 touchbacks. So in this age of not giving up returns, not allowing any big plays, you've got to be good. You've got to get the ball down the field, get it into the end zone, get it in a position where they don't want to return it. They can fair catch it at the five or whatever. Oklahoma wasn't doing that consistently enough. But, of course, it all comes down to me, 15 of 21 
on field goals. You missed six last year. You missed six this year. Your coach now has hesitation when they're in that little gray area. Do I go for it on fourth and six because I don't trust the field goal kicker? Or do I run my kicker out there? Do I maybe punt it because I don't trust the field goal kicker? It's that's where the Oklahoma place kicking game is, and that's why I gave Zach Schmidt and the place kicking unit a C. Something else you didn't mention, he was great at PATs, too. So PATs weren't an issue. Uh, Still hasn't missed. Kickoffs weren't an issue. Here's the thing. There's no pressure on you as far as a pressure moment on a kickoff. Do the, do the same thing every single time. There's no variance. There's no distance variance, all that stuff. A PAT... You shouldn't have to, like, we shouldn't have to bring up, hey, the PATs were good. Oklahoma could not rely on Zach Schmidt to roll out there and make a meaningful field goal. Same deal as last year, right? That a lot of the ones he did bang through were no pressure situations. How much did Oklahoma, would they have liked to have a field goal back in Lawrence? How much would they have liked to have one back in Stillwater? A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, and there's a reason that Oklahoma is going to carry a boatload of kickers next year is because Zach Schmidt cannot kick it. Like, like not, not like Zach Schmidt himself can't kick. If you're Oklahoma, Zach Schmidt cannot be your field goal kicker in 2024. If you expect to have anything good coming out of your kicking unit. And so I D it's a D for me because, uh, Oklahoma had to change fundamentally how they did calculations on offense because of the failings in the kicking game. So you gave them a what a grade? D, a D for the, a D. the kicking Ooh. game. D is for kicker. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, the punting game I thought was pretty strong. I thought it was okay, and then they used uh, Luke Elzinga, the transfer, and he got he improved it. He's long. He's tall. He's got a big, wide um, kicking arc, I guess. And when he gets a hold of that thing, as you saw throughout the year, um, six 50-yarders, he had averaged 46 per, 45 per kick. Uh, he pinned some down inside the, I would say the 20, but that's not even fair. 13 of his 27 kicks were inside the 20. About six of those were inside the five. The, the dude's got a gift. Even though probably the best kick of the year was Dylan Gabriel's pooch punt, um, he might that might have been replaced in the bowl game, but anyway, I digress. Uh, I thought once they switched to Luke Elzinga, Oklahoma's punting game got better, and I'll give it a B minus. Yeah, it, it's tough because like I I think I would have given the punting game an A if they had just stuck like started with Elzinga and roll with him all the way through. I thought he was yep. that good. Um, yep, I, I thought Elzinga he didn't have like the raw boot it as far as Michael Turk could. But he had a lot better feel for, hey, if I drop it on the 20, it gives my return team 20 yards to down it as opposed to trying to just pop it right down on the five. And then the way that that Turk could just absolutely smoke the football, it would roll in or bounce in, stuff like that. So I I thought Elzinga was awesome, but the issue was they didn't use just Elzinga the whole way. They did get a punt blocked in a big way in the Texas game. So all that stuff brought it back to a B for me, but it, it was a B uh, not because of Elzinga's duties. And I almost want to give him an A anyway because of his dance moves in, in the locker room at the Cotton Bowl. <laughs> it was pretty strong. Uh, getting that punt blocked, I was going to take the minus off my B minus and give him a B, but then you reminded me of the Texas punt block and the lack of awareness in that situation. So protection team, not just kicking the ball, but protection scheme-wise, everything else. I'm going to go back to B minus. Uh, the return game was nothing special. 
Jalil Farouk on kickoffs uh, was nothing special. Um, he didn't he didn't do anything to get you beat except for the one time that he did, which was a fumble uh, on a kickoff. So um, trying to think of what my grade is on that. My grade for cover my grade for returns is on, and we're talking punt returns and kick returns here. So of course we're going back to the season opener. I think an 82-yard punt return by Gavin Freeman, his play of the year, easily. Um, put those two things in, and then Freeman kind of levels it out toward the end of the season by fumbling three punts. And we said Farouk fumbled a, a big one at, at – uh, was it Kansas? I keep uh, saying that. Farouk fumbled uh, – was it the opening kickoff against Tulsa? It wasn't Farouk Tulsa. that got nailed. It was Marcus Stripling who was left in – the up back position to try and fair catch it in Lawrence. And that was the fumble in Kansas was not a Farouk fumble. Okay. Uh, that's it, right. It was the, it was the stripling where Farouk did everything he could to try and close <sighs> on the football and get there in time. Yep. Uh, he, he just didn't uh, have enough because he was having to cover too much ground to, to get yeah. over to where stripling was. You got a great memory. I'm so glad you're part of my staff so I can rely on you as I, as I fumble my way through the dark, that is the uh, remembering the last four months. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to go uh, return wise again. Nothing special except for that Gavin Gavin Freeman. I guess Farouk did have a 162 yarder, but um, at some point you expect that out of your return man. So Freeman's uh, 82 yard touchdown, good. Everything else either bad or ordinary. I'm going to go B. Yeah, I, I had trouble squaring this because it was a thing where they've used kickoff returns a lot more than Lincoln Riley did. They don't just do the yeah. straight analytics of put your hand up, give it to me on the 25. And they're pretty good at making sure that they at least don't start deep, deep, deep in their own territory. And so as a result, I think going into the Alamo Bowl, I haven't looked since then. I think they were in the forties, maybe an average kick return, which was good. Uh, not like breaking off anything or stuff like that, but, but they were able to try and gain, some marginal, but they were able to gain some hidden field position. I, I didn't think the punt – I thought the punt return, like I was just nervous every time OU had to re- return a punt in a close game because of some of the yips that I think that uh, Freeman ended up having. Uh, I didn't think the punt return was a huge thing, and it, I, I had to give it a huge, a huge negative, a huge ding for the fact that in one of the games that you lost, that you turned the ball over three times, one of those came on a kickoff. So I gave this group a C just for all the coverage. It was an awesome punt return. It was in a totally inconsequential game because Oklahoma was going to just absolutely hammer uh, anyway, Arkansas State. Um, So I guess it's tough to take away a punt return and to just ignore it. But all the goodwill built up from that was was elapsed by the end of the year. So I I went with a C just because most of the time didn't hurt. But when it did, it was a huge factor in costing Oklahoma a win that would have put them in the Big 12 championship game. Easy enough on this one for me. Uh, the coverage teams, the kickoff coverage and the punt coverage teams, uh, averaged on punts 4.7 yards per return, which is probably a little too high, but it's not bad. Um, you want, If you're really good at that, you want it to be under three. But again, 4.7, I think, was the, was the number. Not bad at all. Uh, and then on kickoff returns, 18. 18 yards per return. They didn't give up any massive ones, any game breakers or anything like that. So uh, I give those guys on the coverage units an A. Congratulations. My overall special teams grade, though, is a C+. Yeah, I went A for the coverage. Very similar. Uh, 
I just think back to a, a year ago, like it felt like there were times, hey, Oklahoma's looking like they're going to blow out Texas Tech and they give up a huge kickoff return that helped spur the Texas Tech comeback to where they had raced that by halftime. That was 2022. We didn't have any of those moments really in 2023 for me. Um, I thought they were really good uh, in coverage. A, I thought special teams wise, something that we haven't covered, you have in the kick return game, a lateral that was not a lateral that cost you 30 yards of field position in the Cotton Bowl. You had a punt, fake punt that was perfectly drawn up, except for the fact that I, I know it was probably a soft flag on Nick Anderson, but he didn't need to touch anybody in Provo, and that would have been a fake punt that, that would have landed. Penalties were an issue all year long mm-hmm. on special teams to go with the fact that you couldn't trust the kicker, to go with the fact it took you half a year to find your punter. So a C- minus for me, I, I, as much goodwill as Jay Nunez had built up with dialing up perfect fake field goals – in 2022, uh, I think they took a clear step backward in some of the just the fundamentals uh, as far as penalties, things like that uh, this year. Yeah, and some of that stuff worked. It just there were glitches, there yeah. were hitches and hiccups, and it's like, well, did how many times did you practice it? Maybe you should have practiced it three more or something. I don't know. Uh, speaking of which, we've podcasted now for 50 minutes, five zero, and um, we could probably spend at least 50 more about this next category. That's coaching. I'm going to, I'm going to say this. I'm just going to throw it out there for the coaching staff as a whole at Oklahoma in 2023. I gave them a B because of the six wins last year, uh, improved to 10 wins this year. You cannot cut it any other way. That's a massive improvement. And it needs it's it's about where it needed to be in year two. If not, there was going to be some red flags. But Ryan's mentioned a couple of them. Um, for instance, why do you have a, a defensive end who's never handled the football in his life on kickoff return down there where they can bl- can pooch it to him? You know, it, put him on the front line, right? If you're going to have a guy, if you're going to have a DN on kickoff return, don't have him down there where they can. They did it to. Earlier in the year, a team did it earlier in the year to Ethan Downs, and he fair caught it and was successful at it because he's played tight end his whole high school career, and he was really good at it. Um, stripling, that didn't happen. Uh, it was he, he, you know, botched the kickoff return, and uh, Kansas goes down and scores. There were little things like that, like the we talked about the running backs. Who's your RB one? Pick one and go with them, and don't go get a guy a hundred yards one game. And then he doesn't play at all the next game. What? Or vice versa, right? He doesn't play at all and then comes in the next game and goes for 100 yards. What? That's just really bizarre. I thought Bill Biedenboe had one of his arguably um, most challenging seasons at offensive line. Um, Moving guys around. Who knows what some of the reasons were, but there were none given for the Tyler Guyton situation and, and a couple others. So just in terms of... Uh, this this could have been better. They could have won those two games. You got sideline penalties in back to back losses on one on your and and your head coach had gotten one earlier in the season, a, a sideline penalty, a fifteen yarder. But yapping at the refs, you got people on the sidelines yapping at the refs, getting fifteen yards in crucial game winning situations. I'm gonna go. I, I said B, but I'm gonna I'm gonna lower it to B minus. I talked myself into a lower grade. Yeah, it, this, this one was tough because it's like, on one hand, when you look at what happened at Oklahoma in 2022, 
huge improvement and and you won your biggest game of the year and you won your biggest game of the year i thought on a great offensive game plan and a great defensive game plan i i don't know how you really are gonna kill jeff levy for one of those turnovers which was a bad snap right in that situation uh deep in the texas end like th- they didn't coach that at all uh javante barnes for it if he had just fallen down when he caught that other snap too, Oklahoma just had one bad play where maybe they got a little too cute and instead yep. it, it turned into disaster. And and I again Britt Middles after the game was talking about like or sorry, that was Bedlam, sorry. Uh Britt Middles right. after the game was like, just fall down, just fall down. You know what I mean? One of those situations. And the other, like I I, I don't hold that uh the other snap too against uh Jeff Levy or anything like that, or Bill Biedenbow. The Kansas game, you look at it, and I'm just like, man, interceptions happen. Um, you have to continue to trust your quarterback. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, they just happen. And so there was enough stuff like that, plus the persistence of the jet sweep and all that, and the silent pillies. I couldn't give this coaching staff an A of any kind. But I thought it was a really good year. The defense clearly looked a lot better. Dylan Gabriel, I thought, clearly took a step forward. I know it's not what Oklahoma fans wanted. B plus, and if and if you just have like if you just have one of those uh, weird ones, whether it be uh, the just trust that Jillifruk doesn't fumble the ball running it out of the backfield in Lawrence, Andrew Rame and Dylan Gabriel don't have the miscommunication on one of the snaps, or Javante Barnes just falls down when he gets the ball, like. Oklahoma's playing for a Big 12 championship. I believe that. And if you're telling me in year two that Oklahoma took a huge step, played for a Big 12 championship, all that stuff, it's hard for me to go much lower than a B plus. It's hard for me to go higher with a couple of the, why did you persist with these things on offense? Uh, but I, I would lay that all at a coach that's not there anymore. So I, I went B plus. And uh, I think all in all, I get the disappointment. I get the frustration. Oklahoma is going to play the tape of that OU Texas game for years, it's going to live forever in the history of the rivalry. That's your biggest game every year. You want it. The team looked a lot better. B plus. Ryan, the uh, basketball team is on to conference play. OU lost one game in non-conference play. They're twelve and one as they go into Big Twelve play. Um, I've asked you this before, but now, given the full body of uh, full body of work that you've seen from the non-conference schedule, um, what do you predict? That they will, that the Oklahoma basketball men's basketball team will finish in Big 12 play. Yeah, 18 games. And when you look at it, they're clearly more athletic. I think there are two big questions for me going into conference play. One, can they shoot consistently enough from deep to overcome? You're going to have nights, much like you had against North Carolina, where you turn the ball over left, right, and center because it's Big 12 play and it's college basketball. You're going to have nights where uh, Oklahoma maybe isn't perfect from the free throw line also happened in that game in Charlotte. And I thought that that, that was the perfect example of they weren't consistent enough shooting from deep to overcome those things and win that game, but still were good enough defensively to, to pull that thing closer. Um, I think I approached this with some cautious optimism and this might sound really bad, but I think this ends up setting you in a good spot. Uh, 11 or 12 wins in big 12 play. I, I think that it, you might be like, wait, that you're close to what's going on. I I'm a believer in this team. I also think that I don't think Cincinnati's just this end all world beater. I don't think Texas tech is as good as they've been the last couple of years. Oklahoma state is not very good. If 
Porter Moser has bedlam issues this year. That's going to be a big headache. West Virginia is getting some guys back with the waivers, but is it too little too late with how awful that non-conference went that they can't rescue the vibes with an interim coach, stuff like that. I think Iowa state's pretty good. I don't think Kansas state's as good as they were last year. I think Baylor's still really good, but not this insurmountable top 10 juggernaut. And I think you're probably going to lose a couple of games to Kansas and, and probably not have good men. You're going to like Kelvin Sampson being back at the Lloyd Noble center pregame. Don't think you're going to like that happening. But uh, I, I think this is going to be a really good Oklahoma team. I, I think the Big 12 is still really deep. I just don't think that you have as many big mountains to climb as far as, like, I, I don't think there's three, like, top 10 caliber teams in this. I, I think that Kansas and Houston are that. I think that Baylor's a top 20 team. I think Oklahoma's a top 20 team. I think Iowa State on their night, Texas on their night, top 20 teams. But that's, as is, is dumb as that sounds, that's a, an easier conference, quote-unquote, than it was last year. Not an easy conference, yeah. but I think it's a little bit better. And uh, Oklahoma was really close to a bunch of wins the last two years. Coming out of that under four timeout, couldn't get it done. I, I'm back in the team. I've got some. I've got some optimism going in that it, it's going to look different for for Oklahoma this year. TCU also stinks, by the way. I'm going to say nine and nine in conference play. Maybe ten and eight. Maybe ten and eight. It would be the ceiling. And when OU is at the Final Four in uh, April. Uh, Porter can play this back and say, Ryan, you and John uh, picked us uh, at the bottom of the conference and that motivated us much like uh, Skip Johnson did a few years ago with baseball at the College World Series. I was insulated then purely by not being on that (laughs) podcast and I'm insulated now. I'll be like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) No, I... It's uh, yeah, you, you, you can remind him. No, coach, I picked you to win 12. Hoover picked you to win nine. Maybe, Maybe it's drinking the cooler. I just... I think you've seen a lot of – I think one of the most impressive things is I just love how consistent this team was up until that North Carolina game. And frankly, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I was so impressed with them before the North Carolina game. I think they were bored and ready for Big 12 play against Central Arkansas and Monmouth. And even then, they were able to spin that thing around that the last like three or four minutes. You're not thinking, oh, is this team on upset alert, stuff like that. And that's just not the case even across the conference, much less college basketball. So we'll see. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm bracing to be very wrong about that group, but uh, I, I don't think they're going to be in a fight to even push Kansas or Houston. But I do think that I think that if things play out the way, if you continue to develop, I don't see a reason why Oklahoma can't be third or fourth in the Big 12 uh, this go-around. I, I think they've just been more consistent than some of the other teams around them. Uh, that is, as Brent Venables might say, aspirationally speaking. It, it is. It is indeed. <laughs> that is aspiring to some heights right there. Hey, Ryan, that's it for you, I guess, this uh, this podcast. Good stuff, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We'll uh, see you, Hoob, and happy to, I guess, ring in the new year with some hoops coverage. Can't wait. Randall's coming up next to talk about the uh, OU signees that he covered in Orlando this past week, and now he's back in San Antonio to cover more OU signees at another All-American game. He'll come up next, and uh, we'll t- we'll discuss all that and more, as well as the transfer portal, comings and goings, all that good stuff coming up next on the All Sooners podcast. All right, segment two. Uh, if you're on the Twitter, give us a follow. You know the, you know the uh, drill by now, all underscore Sooners. You can find me at John E. Hoover. Follow there for basically everything. Uh, if you want to keep up with basketball and softball, you're going to need to follow Ryan at underscore Ryan Chapman. And you can find Ross. He's covering the NFL for us and some basketball. 
at Ross Lovelace. And of course, Randall, who is the, uh, I'm going to go back to my original nickname for you, Camp Randall. <laughs> He's been flying around all the All-American camps the last few days, uh, one in Orlando, one in uh, San Antonio, where we just were for a bowl game. He's flying across the Gulf of Mexico, basically, is what he's doing. He's living in the air. Um, follow Randall at Randall Suite 5 for all the latest recruiting news because he's got it all. The website is allsooners.com. We are a Fan Nation affiliate, part of the Sports Illustrated Network. And you can bet your butt that uh, that's a Rain Man original. That uh, All Sooners is free. No signups, no emails, no passwords, no credit cards needed. It's all free at All Sooners. Randall? Tell me you know who Rain Man is. Uh, Is that a callback to uh, the restaurant that we ate at in Cincinnati? Yes. Nice job. I appreciate it. We ate at Pompilio's restaurant where uh, Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman ate and dropped toothpicks on the floor and had pancakes. And it was was some of the best Italian food I've ever had. Great. It's not not just a a curiosity that they've, you know, hung posters and, and... photos of the cast and crew on the wall it's really good italian food pompilio's and it's actually in kentucky across the river from downtown cincinnati so cincinnati anyway forget cincinnati you're in san antonio where you were at the alamo bowl but then you spent three days in orlando for the under armor all-american game now you're back in san antonio for the all-american bowl in san antonio man what uh, what's standing out to you so far? Not just the guys, not just David Stone and Daniel Akinkumi and those guys, but just about your trips and your travels and the fact that Southwest lost one of your bags. <laughs> well, uh, you know, to update on the, the lost bag, thank <laughs> that Southwest was able to deliver it at 1 a.m. last night. Uh, I got the call up to my hotel room that the bag was here. So uh, awesome. all my stuff was in it. Fortunately, nothing was uh, taken out. Still got the tripod, which I know is of uh, great concern to all Sooners. So uh, everything was uh, all good in there. But I-, I think it's been really fun to see just these kids from all over the country, how in a few days they can come together and really just be friends. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of these guys have met each other multiple times before on, like you said, the camp circuit, seven on seven. I mean, various uh, recruiting events, things like that. But it is really cool still to see kids who, um, you know, aren't with each other all the time, kind of get to um, hang out and kind of enjoy really just um, vacation, but also football practice at the same time. Uh, it's really cool. It seems like uh, all the kids at, you know, in Orlando really enjoyed it. They get to stay at, uh, you know, the Disney Resort there, which is which was really cool. Uh, practices at the ESPN Wide Worlds of Sports Complex, uh, which that was that was awesome to get to see. And then. You know, here in San Antonio, those guys getting to stay at a a nice hotel out here, you know, again, getting to see kind of the camaraderie, getting to see them um, really grow together, especially guys who are going to be playing against each other in college, kind of get to, you know, to mingle, get to know each other. It's a really cool aspect. And I even talked to some of the guys about that, and and it's something that they enjoy, too. All right. So let's let's start in Orlando. You... um... The, the the stupid Alamo Bowl, and I say that because it kicked off at almost 8.30. Mm-hmm. Uh, the game itself got done at almost midnight. We left the arena. We left the stadium at about 2.30 in the morning, and we were able – Ryan and I were able to get a, a shuttle back to the hotel. But you bailed out early because you had a flight to catch to Orlando at like 5 a.m. the next day. You've been on the go since you arrived in San Antonio on the 26th of December, 2023. <laughs> So it's been uh, a grind for you. So let's start in Orlando. You landed on the ground. 
you immediately got to see guys like David Stone, Daniel Akinkunmi, uh, Devon Mitchell, Jaden Hardy, and Eugene Brooks. Five Sooner All-Americans in that game down in Orlando at the, All- at the uh, Under Armour game. Yeah, and and it was really you know it was really good to see them uh, kind of compete against a bunch of guys like that. Um, I mean, really, you go from top to bottom. It, it was um, you know t- getting to talk to them, kind of learn what they were all about, and, and again, kind of getting to see them interact with a bunch of other guys. Uh, I mean, I know everyone um, has seen probably seen the clips of David Stone on Twitter uh, where he's just kind of manhandling some other uh, big time offensive linemen. I think that. Um, you know, in the um, sports media world, uh, some other um, you know podcasts for, that cover other teams. I don't, I don't know names or anything like that. But I'd heard people say that they had some concerns about Stone's work ethic. And after seeing him in person, uh, I don't think that that's true whatsoever. This is a guy who loved to get every rep he could. He was pounding his chest. He was sprinting back to the front of the line. He was, you know, trying to get every single rep he could. He wanted to be in there. He wanted to be practicing. He wanted to be competing. And he was fired up while he was doing it also. Um, so aside from him, you know, physically dominating, you know, being a really skilled player, playing multiple positions along the defensive line, some of those things like that, just seeing how hungry he was to get better, uh, how, how well he took the coaching, how, uh, how fired up he was, how engaged he was, that, that was all really refreshing. And, and it really cleared, I mean, not that I'd ever seen him to have those concerns, but concerns you hear about online, it really cleared up anything like that. Um, again, from an actual football standpoint on the field, uh, I think you saw all the skills that um, make someone a five-star prospect. I mean, six foot four, 280 pounds. Uh, he lined up as a stand-up defensive end. He also lined up as an interior pass rusher. Uh, he won both ways. Uh, as a stand-up defensive end, he went against six foot eight, 365-pound tackle who's uh, committed to Oregon from I think he's from Alabama, uh, from the state of Alabama, committed to Oregon, just a massive, massive guy. And uh, David Stone was able to use a quick move to get inside of him, kind of use a swim move by him, got his helmet taken off and still got to the dummy. Uh, You know, that that kind of represented that quarterback there Um, against some of the interior offensive linemen. You know, he used quick hands, you know, power strength to kind of get his hands into the lineman's chest, push that guy straight back into, again, what the quarterback would be. Uh, And that was some reps against uh, actually a Texas commit at the center position. So again, whether it was working on guards, centers, tackles, he really showed that uh, he's got the athletic ability to kind of dominate um, all of those positions. Uh, and again, he, he showed why he's a five-star prospect, everything you'd expect to see from a guy who's rated that high, you saw it. And um, I know that that might seem like a kind of a baseline, but there were guys there who were rated that highly that you didn't necessarily see all those skills from. Um, and so to go out there and like I said, to prove the work ethic, uh, even whenever I was talking to him, he told me I wouldn't be here if I didn't love football. I told coach, put me in. I want all the reps. I want to do this. Um, and so I think that that um, it's I think he's going to be a guy that Sooner fans really like. I think the coaching uh, when he gets to OU, they're going to really embrace him for that same mentality. And I think that that's going to you know potentially help him get on the field early, even though OU's got some of those defensive linemen coming back up front. What you think of Daniel Akinkumi? Um His introduction his first real uh, he's been over here for camps and stuff like that uh, showcases but in terms of a game and a week's practice and getting instruction from u.s coaches american coaches on the regular like he did this week it sounded like he had a really good week yeah absolutely and i think um, before i even saw him actually take reps i told you physically he passes the test i mean 
as you know, a guy who m most of us, most of us American uh, media guys had never seen in person before. You know, you're kind of eager to you know get your eyes on him, see if he looks like the rest of these offensive linemen, and he absolutely looked like he belonged. You know, big shoulders, long arms, huge hands. Um, again, built really well, tall. Uh, exactly what you'd expect for an, uh, an offensive lineman who's playing at a place like Oklahoma. Uh, he worked at guard mostly, but uh, he was really, uh, I was really impressed with how strong he played. You know, there were some guys who tried to just bull rush him straight back into um, that tackling dummy, what the quarterback would be. And he was able to drop his hips to anchor, to stick his feet in the ground and fight back um, where he wasn't getting pushed around by some of those guys. Um, he didn't win every single rep, but again, you wouldn't expect a guy who's as raw as he is to just dominate every single one of these guys. I mean, these are four or five-star prospects that he's going against. And so, of course, he, he lost a couple of reps, but on the reps that he won, I think you really saw where his potential is. I think you really saw that he could be a really dominant player on the offensive line. Again, uh, there's you know four or five-star guys bull rushing him, trying to take their power and use it straight on him. And I think he showed that he's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of strength in the lower half. Uh, to be able to anchor down and not let those guys push him back, kind of move those guys out of the way. Um, I think that once he's able to get to OU, uh, learn from Bill Biedenboe. I mean, again, he, he even said it. This is a guy who's only been playing football for a year and nine months. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, think about if if I told you that there is a kid in Dallas, Texas, who's been playing football for less than two years and he's coming to Oklahoma. It'd sound crazy, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, when you think when you take everything in, into consideration and you look at what he's already done um, again at a camp like this, I think it really shows that the potentials through the roof there, you know, to win on some of those reps. It shows that um, it's not it's you're not starting from square one. He's not a complete project. While there's a lot of work to be done, you're starting from a pretty good base, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Dibs on the nickname, which I gave him last summer, England Dan. You guys yep. that are old like me know England Dan and John Ford Coley. So uh, a singing group from the 70s. They had beards and long hair, and they sang uh, yacht rock music. So uh, check it out. England Dan is my nickname for Daniel Akinkumi because he's from England. Uh, the thing I like about him most, Randall, is that he was out there after hours, after the team has gone into the bus, to the showers, to you know the, the locker room, whatever it is. He's out there by himself working on individual technique. And this was not a photo op. I've seen this before, not from him, but from another guy when I was there last year. Guys that could get out there and they're like, okay, here's what I was working on. Here's the skill I want to perfect. Here's what I was missing. Here's what coach told me to do. I'm going to go ahead and get some of that in right now. And he was working on his craft. It was impressive. Yeah. And, and you know, like you said, when I posted that video, some people in the comments said, well, is this just a photo opportunity? No. We all showed up to take photos because we saw him doing that. But this is a guy I saw him talking to the coaches after practice, you know, kind of working on some of those steps, working on some of that. And even in practice, when he would make a mistake, the coach would pull him aside and kind of help him correct it. You, you'd you see on the next rep, he fixed it immediately. Um, you know, the, he took the coaching really well. And I think that's what is really the most encouraging because, you know, a guy like Bill Biedenboe is going to, you know, he knows what to teach these kids. I mean, he's obviously done it with tons of guys. Um, that's kind of Bill Biedenboe's track record is developing these guys. Um, into NFL draft prospects. And so uh, I think the way that you saw Akinkumi take some of that coaching, um, kind of quickly fix and correct his mistakes, that's got to encourage you when he's going to an offensive line coach with a track record like Bill Biedenboe. And again, with the physical traits he has, um, he's starting from a good position. Yeah. And speaking of offensive line, um, Eugene Brooks uh, yeah. had apparently, again, I wasn't there, but I'm relying on your expertise, your evaluations. Apparently he had a hell of a week also. Uh, I'll say this real quick. I'll interject this. 
when I was there last year, OU had seven guys that were all Americans at that game. We left the week saying, um, Caden Green, probably the best offensive lineman here. One of played left tackle, then played right tackle, then played left guard. Caden Green was the best at his position. Uh, Peyton Bowen, super smart. Didn't have much to do because they don't do a lot. They don't ask a lot of the safeties. They just kind of give them the game plan and, and let them react and stuff yep. like that. Peyton Bowen was amazing. Uh, you could you could tell his intelligence. He was arguably the best safety at this thing last year. Um, who am I leaving out? Obviously, uh, Jackson Arnold walked away from that thing as the best quarterback consensus. Not just me sitting here saying, oh, I love Jackson Arnold. No, it's everybody giving their assessment is Jackson Arnold is the next. And that's why they call it Under Armour Next. Jackson Arnold is the next great quarterback come out of this thing. And he was. He looks like he's going to be. And then P.J. Adebore, when he gets done at the Under Armour last year, you're walking out of there and you're saying, best defensive end I saw, P.J. Adebore, best offensive lineman, best quarterback. So uh, I, I set all that up to, for you to express Eugene Brooks had a hellacious week by all accounts. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of similar to what you're saying. I mean, David Stone was one of the most impressive defensive linemen I saw. Uh, there's a couple other guys that I could mention that are going to other schools that were also really impressive on the defensive line. But I think often, from what I saw out of the offensive line, I think Eugene Brooks was easily the most impressive guy that I saw personally. Um and I mean, again, I talked about an anchor with Daniel Akinkumi. Well, Eugene Brooks has an even better anchor. I mean, right now, again, he's played more football, so I'm not uh, trying to diss Daniel or anything like that. But he's a guy who would not get pushed back. Uh, you know, once he put his feet in the ground, there was not a guy who was going to push him backwards into that tackling dummy. He was extremely physical. He showed that nastiness that you really want from offensive linemen where he's getting his hands up there. He's pushing guys. He's, you know, not making it easy on them. And again, I don't think I saw him lose a rep at all, all week. And again, these, these defensive linemen that he's going against, these are high four-star. These are five-star guys. These are guys that are committed to schools like Texas A&M, like other places that OU is going to play in the SEC. Um, these are guys that OU offer, that OU wanted. And he's out there. I don't think he lost a rep. Like I said, I don't think he lost a rep to anyone. Um, he was able to get when he got his hands into a guy's chest, it was over for that person. He's so strong, which, uh, again, upper and lower half, you could really tell the strength. Uh, he just it was it was like a brick wall, really. I mean, he was not moving once he got his feet in the ground, once he got his his uh, lower half dropped, you know, anchored down into the ground. Once he got his hands, his arms locked out, there was not anyone that was going to push him back. And I think that once he's able to get in working with some Jerry Schmidt and uh, Bill Biedenboe, I think that Eugene Brooks could be a special, special player. I mean. I think that um, again, not not like player comp, like playing style wise, but I think uh, he could be like a Caden Green in the way that if OU is really thin at guard this year again, he could get in and make some starts as a true freshman. Again, I'm not saying he plays like Caden Green. That's not what I'm saying at all. But just um, kind of role wise, I think that he's he's that talented um, yeah. after seeing him here. And he's not. I will say he's not the tallest guy in the world, but that doesn't matter when he's on the interior. He's really strong. He anchors really well, and he beat taller guys all week. Um, at tight end, you've got uh, Devon Mitchell, who is younger than everybody out there, but he's also big, tall, uh, extremely athletic, uh, physical, uh, talented with the football. What was his week like? Yeah, so, so it was interesting. He was playing for uh, Coach Lorna um, Montgomery from Bixby High School in, in uh, the Tulsa area, so that was pretty cool to see. But um, – you know, they didn't, they didn't actually throw their tight ends the ball that much uh, in any of the practice reps that I saw. 
Uh, and they actually didn't run in one-on-ones against defensive backs. So I, I really would have liked to see him run some of that stuff. Uh, they more The tight ends more did their own drills. But again, I think even from that, you could see how quick, how agile, uh, how nimble on his feet he is, which for a kid who's 16, 17 years old, he's supposed to be a junior in high school, that's 245 pounds, that's 6'5". You really wouldn't expect him to be so quick, so agile. Uh, I saw him release off the line, and I was blown away. It was the first time I'd seen him in person. I was blown away by how quick off the line his release was. You know, there's usually something that you talk about out of a receiver, right? Um, and so I think for a guy, again, seeing that out of a guy who's supposed to be a junior in high school at six foot five, 245 pounds, it's really impressive. Um, I think one of the best catches I saw him make all week was uh, he was running what looked like an out route um, over the shoulder, cradled it really well, got uh, stepped on the defensive back's toes and was able to, you know, quickly spurt out. And when he made the catch, uh, one of the defensive backs that was standing on this on the sideline right next to me looked at the coach and the coach told him he said yeah that kid he's a 2025 and the the de- all the defensive backs were shocked just to learn that someone that big that athletic that skilled already uh, was one of the youngest guys if not the youngest guy in attendance i, I don't know if there's any other guys who reclassified but i know that um, devon's a lot younger than everyone else there and still uh, you can tell that he's very physically gifted i mean he's huge I think that, uh, again, I, it's, I sound like a broken record, but once these guys can get in and work with Jerry Schmidt and they're kind of able to um, you know, rework their bodies from high school and stuff like that, I think that a lot of these guys are going to be even better than we saw here um, at, at the Under Armour camp. Uh, I think Devon Mitchell, again, once he's able to get into some of that strength and conditioning, uh, get even bigger, get even faster, I think that that's going to be a guy who uh, definitely will play early in his career just because um, you don't see guys that are that physically gifted with the, the blend of athleticism, the size, the speed, uh, like Devon Mitchell. And again, uh, his hands are really good. I didn't really see him drop anything. They just didn't really throw him the ball that much. Mm-hmm. But I think athletically, you saw everything that you want to see out of a guy like that. And then we'll wrap up Orlando with Jaden Hardy, uh, defensive back, cornerback, uh, 5'11", 165 out of Louisville, Texas. Not an imposing frame, of course, at 5'11", 165, but comes with uh, his dad, played in the NFL for several years, played for the Cowboys for a little while. Uh, he's got some bloodlines. What was his week like in Orlando? Yeah, and um, so in the interview I did with him, he, I asked him, I was like, what's your, what's your best skill? What are you best at? And he said his IQ, his leadership, uh, kind of those qualities, which um, seems to kind of be a real theme amongst the safeties that Brent Venables and company have been recruiting. Uh, if you ask Michael Patterson McDonald, I think he would tell you that the same skills are kind of his strength too. And so I think that's something that um, Brent Venables, uh, Brandon Hall look for in their safeties. I mean, if you go back and even, you know, look at when the Patriots were winning their Super Bowls, that was something that Bill Belichick always talked about. He really loved having smart safeties who were good leaders. Um, and so I think that uh, Jaden Hardy, uh, while he told me that himself, and then you could see it out there on the field. Um, after every rep, whether he won or he lost, he was going over to the sideline. He was listening to the coaching. He was really engaged. He wasn't one of those guys, you know, he's listening through his ear hole. He's, you know, eyes locked into the coach. He's paying attention to what the guy's saying, which you really like to see, especially because some of these guys who are, you know, big time recruits at their high school, they come and they don't want to hear that. You know, they, they already think that they're some hot shot. They, and there were guys like that in Orlando, but Jaden Hardy definitely wasn't one of them. He listened to coaching. He was a guy who really seemed to get along with everyone. Um, on his team, he, he again, the, the leadership qualities are, are evident there with, with Jaden Hardy. And uh, they had him kind of playing press man coverage and a lot of one-on-one drills against the fastest receivers there, which is not necessarily his skill set. Um, there's a reason he's playing safety, you know, not corner. 
Um, but but when he did kind of get to play more of that safety role, I think you saw, again, uh, his IQ kind of play out. He can see the field. He can make those reads and stuff like that. So in the team drills, he looked a lot better. Uh, the one-on-one drills, again, wasn't really playing to his skill set. But there were a few good reps in those one-on-ones where he get – Again, he showed he's fearless. He's not scared to go up and put his hands on those guys in press coverage. So uh, even if it's not right now what he's best at, uh, it's something that he had no problem going down and trying. And and he still was able to win some reps against some really, really talented receivers. Good stuff, man. Um, A quick reminder, if you like the All Sooners podcast, drop us a nice rating. Five stars is always helpful. Share us on social media. That gets the word out and helps the podcast grow. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and leave us a comment. And if you want to advertise with the All Sooners podcast, just send me an email, allsoonerssi at gmail.com, allsoonerssi at gmail.com. All right, Randall, you're in, uh, uh, geez, where are you? San Antonio now. So uh, you're there for the under, sorry, you're there for the all-American Bowl is what it's called now. It's not the U.S. Army because that one moved to uh, Frisco, Texas. And so the one in San Antonio is just called the All-American Bowl now. I think it's sponsored by Adidas. I think so. I, I, I believe that's what I saw. Um, yeah, when so, I- Anyways, sponsorships aside, sorry, Adidas. Uh, I wore one of your shirts yesterday and I bought a new coat mm. uh, when I was in San Antonio. Yep. Uh, an Adidas three-stripe coat. It's really nice. Thank it you. Very nice. Anyway, we move on. Uh, you're there to cover... Four All-Americans, but only two of them showed up. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, it's from what I was hearing, it sounds like Nigel Smith may not be allowed to participate because he practiced. He went through a bowl prep with OU. Um, so unfortunate we won't be able to see him. But uh, that's you a guy choose, that – You choose one or the other, basically. You, right. If you're a high school All-American that wants to go enroll early and starts bowl practice, you get to do that or you get to – uh, be an All-American and participate, practice, and play in the game at the All-American game. So it's one of those two things. You get, you apparently have to choose. I think many OU fans would, would be happy that Nigel Smith chose uh, to practice with the team. That's a guy who's got a really bright future with OU. Again, the guy who can challenge for playing time early. So I don't think that he's going to be upset about his decision. Taylor Tatum, the other guy who's supposed to be here, um, from what we were told, sounds like uh, he's going to – kind of save himself, save his body for baseball season, high school baseball season. At, right. uh, he's a senior at Longview, Texas. Uh, again, he's going to play baseball and football at OU. So wanted to get that final baseball season at Longview High School in. Uh, good for Taylor Tatum. So I uh, won't get to see him here either. But the two guys we will get to see, both on the East roster, uh, James Nesta from North Carolina, a linebacker who's heading to OU, and Zion Raggins, wide receiver from Georgia, who I believe was your uh, under-the-radar pick in this class, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. Speedy. Yeah. Yes, and uh, I'm here to report all the speed is real. He is extreme. We didn't really get to see him run vertical routes today. They were kind of um, just doing some walkthroughs. They weren't even in pads, really. But I think just in the the motions that he was running, you know, whether running him across the formation, uh, the routes he was running, you can see – You, I mean, you can just tell that that speed, that elite quickness, it's all there. Um, he's a really small, slight of frame guy, so he will probably have to add some weight just to, you know, deal with some of the bigger defensive backs, kind of take on some of those hits that he's going to uh, have to see in the SEC. But I mean, again, the speed, the quickness is elite. You can't teach stuff like that. I mean, this is like nearly Brennan Thompson level speed and quickness. So, um, you know, you can't really have enough of those guys on your roster. The way he changes direction is insane. Uh, it's so quick. It's, he stops on a dime. That's going to be uh, make him really elusive after the catch. Again, didn't get to see them in pads today, but I think that um, when we do, it's going to be a guy that's really, really hard to tackle. Uh, 
we didn't actually get to talk to Zion today, which we would have liked to. That's We're going to do that tomorrow. Um, but I think that he's a guy who, after seeing him here today, I think his skill set really, really lends itself to um, special teams uh, early on in his career. Um, you know, while he's not able to get on the field as a receiver, just because that receiver room is kind of deep, he's a younger guy. I think, um, again, that speed, that change of direction, that elite quickness, that's what that's really going to be helpful as a you know kick, punt returner, whatever it may be. Um, and and I, I'm, I can't – if – Tomorrow, I will talk to him about that. Check it out on allsooners.com. Again, tomorrow, uh, we'll talk to him more about special teams and things like that. And James Nesta, he was working with the second team defense today, so we didn't necessarily get to see him as much. Um, but uh, he, he really looks um, like what you'd expect. He needs to add some weight before he gets you know major snaps at the next level. I think he's probably about 210 pounds right now. Um, but again, he's tall. He's long. Um, a guy who, again, listens to the coaching really well. Uh, and... Well, we didn't get to see the physicality today uh, in practice because they weren't wearing pads. He was where he needed to be when they were doing run drills. He was filling gaps well. Uh, he was able to run right next to the running back uh, on a wheel route um, in coverage. So um, the thing, all the basic things that you'd expect a Brent Venables linebacker to kind of know how to do, to be good at, those were there. Uh, another guy who's actually going to play baseball and football at OU and James Nesta. Um, and so we'll get to talk to him more about that tomorrow as well. Sounds good. Um, there'll be uh, it, there was a little bit of a snafu with the media access today, and and the guys weren't made available as as Randall referred to. But uh, tomorrow there will be interviews. There will be uh, he said he's going to camp out outside the uh, locker room. <laughs> camp Randall camping out outside the locker room. Can't Sorry. wait. Let's uh, let's switch gears and talk about, um, and we'll have more for you at AllSooners.com as Randall uh, delivers the goods throughout yep. the rest of the week. I think they play on the 6th, so yep. uh, yeah, looking forward to the rest of your reports there. Yeah, the, um, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I do have um, the highlights from practice today. Again, didn't do much hitting, but if you want to kind of see that Zion Ragon speed and quickness that I'm talking about, definitely go check out the highlight. Highlight reel. You'll see uh, what I mean. He's, he's a guy who seems like a really fun-loving guy. I think uh, he'll get along really well at OU. Uh, any surprise that uh, our man Andy Bass is a Gatorade Player of the Year in the state of Oklahoma? Uh, no, no, no surprise there. He deserved it. Uh, if you haven't seen his stats, I think he put up like 40, nearly 50 touchdowns, like 4,000 yards rushing. 60, 60 touchdowns. Yeah, I, I was underselling him. Sorry, Andy. Uh, <laughs> He had an amazing year. Uh, he, he deserved Gatorade Player of the Year. I think anyone who saw him play uh, this season can definitely tell you that, too, because it wasn't just empty stats. He was uh, he he was incredible. Averaged 11 yards a carry as a quarterback and then averaged like 14 yards per completion or per attempt, and I think. He only threw like, what, two interceptions also? Yeah, with 34 <laughs> touchdowns, two interceptions. Just a ridiculous stat line. Yeah. I, I still – I mean, you put him at running back, it's almost a waste – yeah, he is so skilled, so talented, so good at doing so many different things. Yeah, they got to find like a utility position for him. I, I mean, there's a reason I said that. I thought he would earn snaps as a freshman. I mean, yeah. uh, before the knee injury, I definitely thought that. Even with it, he might still get some snaps on the field as a freshman. But I mean, he's just so versatile. He's so good at so many different things that it's it's hard to keep a guy like that off the field. All right, the portal exits are up to twenty, Randall. <laughs> Uh, any surprise there? The last two that we haven't talked about on the podcast anyway are Blake Smith. Yeah. He was here for all of one year. Uh, he transferred, caught two passes, and then tra tied in, transferred out, uh, or is entering the transfer portal, I should say. 
And then another one that's a little bit of a, in big big picture, a little bit of a surprise is Day McCulloch, the safety, yeah. little brother of Desan McCulloch. I thought they were going to be here together for a few years because Desan's just a sophomore. And right. when Day transfers out, Day McCulloch transfers out, you're like, wait a minute, what does this mean for Desan? Is he going to leave too? You wouldn't think so because he played such a vital role for, at that uh, cheetah linebacker, but. Just, I think both of those are interesting. I think Blake Smith might have been able to co- contribute something next year, and I certainly think Dave McCulloch was on his way. At least he got some playing time as a true freshman. Yeah, so so Blake Smith, I think, is one that um, we've been maybe expecting a little bit more um, to hop in the portal just after being kind of the backup this year. Um, you know, with Devon Mitchell coming in, with Bauer Sharp coming in, uh, potentially, are you still looking in the portal for another tight end? Um, I think that. Uh, Blake Smith probably didn't enter earlier because he wanted to still play in that bowl game, still get um, a few more uh, plays with his teammates in before entering the portal. But again, um, seems like maybe a guy that just didn't work out uh, whenever he came from Texas A&M. Uh, didn't end up being a huge part of the offense. It seems like he played a little more earlier in the year than later. Um, and again, with Bauer Sharp coming in, with Cade McIntyre coming back, with potentially Caden Helms coming back, um, you've got Devon Mitchell coming in as a true freshman. Oh, he's going to have in theory, some guys who can compete um, and play and be really dynamic pass catching and blocking tight ends there. Um, and so so maybe the writing was on the wall that uh, Blake Smith wasn't going to get the playing time he wanted next season or necessarily have the role he wanted next season, if, even yeah. if he did get some snaps. Um, and so, and I, I, like I said, I do think there's still tight ends in the portal um, that OU might go after, specifically Jake Roberts from Baylor. Uh, his younger brother is a tight end at Washington High School in Oklahoma. Yeah. Yes. You mentioned it. Big one. And Jake, Jake had a decent year for Baylor. Um, he's, he had some production, so that might be a guy that OU goes after. I think he actually originally um, played for Seth Luttrell at North Texas um, uh-huh. before going to Baylor too. So there's a lot of connection there. That That's definitely a name I would watch out for, for Sooners fans. Um, but yeah, you mentioned Dea McCullough. That, that one's a lot more interesting. A guy who was much younger, and so it seemed like there was a lot longer um, in his career that OU had to work with. Um, I, I don't think that, um, again, OU fans might be worried about Desan McCullough. From what I've heard, I don't think that um, Desan McCullough is on his way out. I think that um, he's happy where he's at. I think he you know got a lot of playing time this year, and I think that next year that's going to continue. He was, like you said, he was a pretty good player for the Sooners defense this year. Um, but I just think that maybe with Robert Sears Jennings coming back, with Peyton Bowen, um, with Billy Bowman coming back, you know, those are, those are three guys that are going to take a lot of reps at safety. Um, you know, some of the other young guys on this team, Jaden Rose coming back from an injury. Um, so in theory, if he's playing uh, safety, you know, he's a little bit of a bigger player now might not be might be moving from corner to safety or something like that. Just with the depth in the defensive backfield, it seems like maybe uh, McCullough just wasn't going to get the time on the field this season that he wanted. I, I don't I don't know that for sure. But um, that one that one is a little more um, puzzling again. Oh, you also have seven defensive backs coming in in this recruiting class. A handful of those are safeties with Jaden Hardy, with Michael Patterson, McDonald, with Reggie Powers from Ohio. So again, there's there's a there's a big group of that defensive backfield may, that that might have been uh, part of the reason for McCullough. But I think that as it relates to Desan McCullough, I think that um, Desan is probably um, on the roster next year from from what I've heard. Yeah, me too. Um, if you're having those exit interviews and you're telling Dave McCulloch, listen, man, if you want to get on the field next year, you're probably going to have to transfer, but uh, we'd love to have you here for the long term. If you're telling him that and encouraging him to transfer as these conversations often go, you you better check with his big brother first. Hey, if, if he transfers, are you sticking around? You know, you got to you gotta 
that these are these are like parts of the shell game mm-hmm. things around you need to check with so yeah. I, I find that interesting and i'm sure brent and uh ted roof and probably you know jay valai and probably uh, uh brandon hall as well um they probably all have great relationships with the parents there and they everybody college football family right college football coach they probably all know the score so i don't know we don't want to overact to guys jumping in the transfer portal but the number is up to 20 right now. The incoming number is up to eight after a kicker jumped in today, uh, committed to Oklahoma, Tyler Keltner. From, uh, he's from Tallahassee, went to East Tennessee State, basically started at East Tennessee State for four years and then transferred what he thought, I guess, was his final year to Florida State, his hometown school. He's, uh, he, didn't, he didn't kick but one extra point last year, This I should say this year, for the undefeated Seminoles, right, uh, going into the bowl season anyway. Uh, but that's uh, that's one, and then the other one that we haven't gotten to here on the podcast, Jocelyn Malaska, um, OK Preps dude from Bethany, defensive back, good player coming out of high school, had some nice offers, went to Utah, Pac-12 two-time champ, right, Utah, and uh, decides he's going to transfer to Oklahoma, so he's committed to Oklahoma as well. So there's a uh, kicker and a safety, or I guess a safety slash corner. Um, in uh, the transfer portal that have joined just in the past few days. Yeah, and Malaska is a guy who Brent Venables and company was able to get. I mean, I think both, well, both of these guys, but Malaska is specifically a guy that Brent Venables was able to get on, on a preferred walk-on. I think that's really a steal um, for Brent Venables and company because, like you said, this is a guy who had some good offers coming out of high school. While he didn't play much uh, in the defensive backfield at Utah, he did, um, you know, he did get a lot of playing time on special teams. So you have to think that even if he doesn't, again, come in and play safety right away, he could make an impact on special teams for the Sooners, um, which is always important. But adding, again, that's another guy that you're adding more depth in that secondary, that defensive backfield, a guy who's from Bethany, um, you know, so nearby. His brother is a uh, 2026 OU offer also from Bethany. So um, I'm sure that that probably helps uh, keep a good relationship with um, Evanson Malaska, the 2026 defensive back from Bethany. Um, But really, it's a, a, a good athlete who's probably had some good, not probably, who has had good coaching at Utah. I mean, you know what Utah is able to put out on the field defensively year after year. So a guy who's had good coaching at Utah, um, who's a decent athlete, who, um, you know, is from the Oklahoma City area. All the dots really um, add up there if you're Brent Venables and company, especially if you're able to get the guy on a preferred walk-on. And I'm sure that I, I haven't been told this for sure, but it, I would be very surprised if there's not some NIL involved, kind of similar to a Bergen Kaiser Andy Bass situation where while he's not on scholarship, he's not going to be paying to go to OU, you know, um, something like that. But uh, still, uh, to get him to not use uh, anything towards that scholarship count to get a player of this quality, I think is huge. And I think that really has been a staple of Brent Venable's time at OU. I think you've seen that when, whether it's Gavin Freeman, whether it's Andy Bass, you know, Bergen Kaiser now, uh, guys out of the transfer portal like Malaska. Um, and I think these are. I think he's a solid player that even if he doesn't contribute at defensive back this this year, maybe could down the line. And again, if nothing else, will be a solid special teams player and probably a, help, a piece that helps recruit his brother, uh, if nothing else. And oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and the kicker uh, Keltner. I think that um, it, there's no guarantee that he's going to be the starting kicker next year. But I think that that you bring him in as to say. Uh, you know, we don't want to just hand the job to Liam Evans, who's a true freshman coming in from Moore High School, uh, rated the number seven kicker uh, by Cole's kicking in the country. 
Um, now, Liam Evans is a talented guy who will compete for the starting job next year, but I think that's what you brought Keltner in to do is to push that competition and, and give you another option that if Liam Evans isn't the answer, if um, you know Gavin Marshall, if Zach Schmidt, whoever is not the answer, you know you have a guy that can at least come in there and compete, give you another option, and hopefully raise the bar for all those guys. You know they say that competition makes everyone better, and so um, this way you, you're not handing the job to one guy. It's not a default kicker winning the job. It's uh, you know you actually have options, and those guys have to actually earn the job. They have to beat each other out and prove that they're that they're good enough to do it. Yeah, and here's the thing about kickers. Uh, you can be an FCS kicker at East Tennessee State and make 75% of your kicks, including a school record 54-yarder and a 51-yarder and on and on and on. You can do that at East Tennessee State because the only thing you're going against is the ball, right? You see what I'm saying? You're not going against other FCS talent talent level players. If you're an offensive tackle in the FCS, you're probably not going to see as many good defensive ends as you would in the FBS or the Power mm-hmm. Five, right? Kicker's different. Kicker, the only opponent is the same exact size and shape and color as every other kicker in the country, and it's brown and it's oblong and it goes through the uprights. Just kick the ball. You don't got to be an elite kicker. That's why so many programs, so many elite programs don't have scholarships for kickers because kickers are, when you you never know what you're going to get. I've seen scholarships go out to kickers and they suck, right? We've seen it. And then I've seen uh, kids come out of nowhere, and they're awesome. Like the dude for the Cowboys right now wasn't mm-hmm. even a football kicker. Soccer. Soccer player. Yeah. There are so many soccer players in this world who could be – and I said this, guys, I said this a long time ago. There are so many Australian rules football players who could be punters in the United States. And look what's happened. It's been a revolution. All these punters in college football and the NFL – I'm saying the same thing about co- soccer players. If they're tired of playing soccer, running around, uh, getting tackled from behind, whatever, I don't know. Go play football. Go kick that thing through the uprights. If you can kick it 50 yards, man, they'll sign you. Think about Think back to your high school team. Everybody who played high school football, who was the kicker on your high school team? It was a kid who played soccer, wasn't it? At least at my high school, our I high school. Soccer, yeah. Yeah, at least at least at our high school, our kicker, shout out to Manuel Rodriguez. He could hit a 48-yarder when we were in high school. He was a soccer player. And and I think that that you know, like you said, if you're if you need a guy, you know, go grab someone who's a high school soccer player uh, or who's playing, you know, if you're a pro team, go grab someone who's playing in the MLS. Say, "Hey, maybe you maybe you uh, run around a little bit less, you can come kick for us." Yes. Stand over here with your helmet and your single single face mask ball. <laughs> But but I, I do think that, you know, obviously kicker was an issue all year for you. And, and it, again, Keltner at least gives you another option. He's a, a guy uh-huh. coming and challenge for the job. If he doesn't win it, he'll, it'll take at least a good, decent kicker to, to beat him out for the job. What, what is that I hear at the at the kicker position? Competitive Com- depth? depth. <laughs> is that what I'm listening to right now? What? Yep. Brent, Brent, right, uh, the, the big recruit of the week – is a guy who came back, Woody Washington. Yeah. Um, you got uh, you got Billy Bowman coming back. And then a few days later, you got Danny Stutzman coming back. And then a few days later, you got DeJon Terry and Jacob Lacey coming back. And then a couple of weeks after the bowl game, a couple of weeks later, you got Woody Washington coming back. You talk about now, I, I don't know if Woody got the grade that he thought he was going to get in when it comes to the NFL draft. Uh, but Danny Stutzman's dad told me he got a, a very favorable grade and anybody else would have left for the NFL. 
Billy Bowman, I understand he got a pretty solid grade for the NFL draft, but decided he wanted to come back, play that one more year. Congratulations to Billy Bowman, by the way, for being engaged to uh, Jada Coleman, uh, which is weird. I flew with Jada Coleman on the way back from San Antonio to Dallas. She didn't say anything about getting engaged. (laughs) Maybe he sprung it on her. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Woody Washington is a great get. Uh, He didn't have probably the senior year that he would have wanted to. He wasn't like a dominant shutdown corner. But he was OU's most consistent and healthiest corner, and I thought he was the best corner on the team all year long. Totally, and I think with um, you know with the youth that you have behind Woody Washington, uh, you know it's really good for OU to get him back because you don't want to throw a guy who's you know never started a game out and play him in the SEC for you know his first full season as a starter. You, know, you want to be able to to ease those guys in to, to you know they, you want to get them snaps, but you don't want to have to rely on them the entire game, right? And so. You know, if you can start Woody and then, you know, you can mix in some of those younger guys behind him. That's that's I think how Brent Venables and company would prefer to do it. Um, you know, they, they also you have to think about now. They also added Dejon Malone, uh, the transfer from uh, Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati, San Diego State. And so now you've got two veteran corners in Woody Washington and, and uh, Des Malone. Um, so that that's really favorable. And again, you got Gentry Williams coming back. Uh, I think that um, Woody Washington uh, being the veteran guy. um really going to help anchor that defensive backfield. He's a guy who kind of uh, almost like a player coach with how long he's been there, with how much he's soaked in all the coaching and is able to disperse that to the younger guys. It's, you know, it really helps out the coaching staff a lot because it's, you know, the little things that they don't have to teach the younger guys. You can, you know, Woody Washington can pull him aside and say, hey, you know, do this. You know, when you're doing a drill, he can, you know, get everyone lined up, things like that, just the small things. I think it's important for those reasons. And again, having maturity, having a guy who's seen a lot of snaps in college football is going to be crucial as you go into the SEC to play against, you know, some of the, you know, best competition in the country. And again, getting Woody back and Ethan Downs too, huge. Yeah, Ethan, I never got the sense he wanted to leave or was thinking about leaving. He right. didn't I don't think he put anything out there that he was coming back, right? Like a big announcement or anything. Right. It's but just having him back is huge. Right. Yeah, just a guy who's been solid for the past, you know, 2 years and uh, yeah. is going to be a really important player as they ha- as the Sooners head into the SEC. He just got a thousand times more famous too. Did you see what he did? <laughs> yes. All yes. Weekend, uh, during the uh, halftime of the Texas semifinal game, I was out I was, there getting his uh, his uh, all state good works team and him and however many twenty two other guys, twenty one other guys, whatever it was. They're out there getting their awards and they're standing there and everybody's cheering for him and he sees all those Texas fans and he goes like this. In front of like the whole stadium starts booing him. He's up on the big board, the jumbotron. It was hilarious. I, uh, you know, I was I was watching with my dad, and I was trying to point it out to him, like, look, look, and he was like, what? He didn't. He did not understand why it was so significant. But uh, yeah, it it, was that was pretty pretty funny. If if that's a like a football writers association kind of a a all American team, or here's. Here's your all conference team, or your all graduate team, or your all you know academic team. No, this is the all nice guy team. This yeah. is the all everybody roots for everybody on that field because every one of those dudes is out there doing community service and helping kids and underprivileged and going to church functions. And he's he's like, I don't care, I don't care, I'm doing my thing. And he did it, and oh my god, Texas fans just lit him up. But you know that's what college football. I'm sorry. If you're soft and you're charming and you're sensitive about stuff like that, you don't need to be cheering for college football teams anyway. 
this is college football, and this is what rivals do. They get in each other's grill, and I Absolutely. loved it. I loved it. And if if Texas had something that they would do something to Texas A and M or Oklahoma or whoever, then do it. Yep. And, be, and and wear it proud. Wear it on your sleeve, man. That's what I love about college football. That's what, that's what makes it so fun. That's what makes us all so passionate about covering this sport. And and uh, yeah, I think that. While Texas fans, obviously, it's, it's just going to, I mean, it, it feuds the rivalry. It fuels the rivalry, excuse me. And I think that while Texas fans obviously hated Ethan Downs for it, he even it further ingrained himself as a legend in OU fans' mind. Absolutely. If he never plays another down, fan base is going to love him forever for that. Absolutely. So good for him. That's what happens when you grow up in the state of Oklahoma, rooting against Texas, right? That's right. Weatherford, Oklahoma. That's right. Good stuff. Hey, man. Keep up the good work. We'll follow you for the rest of the time that you get until you get back from uh, San Antonio. Appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, Hoof. Hey, thank you all for listening as well. We will be back next week on the All Sooners podcast, and you can find that one and all of our shows at Apple, Google, Spotify, Podbean, iHeart, or anywhere you listen to your podcast. If you have an Amazon-enabled device, just say, Alexa, play the All Sooners podcast. It's also posted on our website allsooners.com. Just click on the player and listen on your phone, your tablet, or your computer. And all of our shows are posted on my YouTube channel, John Hoover Media. For Ryan Chapman and Randall Sweet, I am John Hoover. See you guys.